Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Play, play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Now, Konnichiwa. Shalom. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste. Wendell's World in Sports. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Hola, what's going on? What's happening? Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi llamo a Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports, senor, senorita. I hope everybody's doing fantastic. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody's staying healthy. I hope everybody's using common sense. I hope everybody's listening to the experts in terms of social distancing, in terms of wearing a mask, in terms of doing what we need to do to get back to some type of normalcy sooner rather than later. I miss my goddaughter. I miss my brother. I miss my mother. I want to go ahead and I want to see them. I want to tell them how much I love them. And I can't do that because of the place we are with the pandemic. So please do it for me in terms of be responsible, in terms of listening to the experts, in terms of doing what we need to do to curb what's going on right now in our society with this deadly pandemic, with this COVID-19 nonsense. So I hope that we're going ahead and we're doing that. And I hope that you're staying safe. I hope everybody is doing what they need to do to make this place a better place to be. I hope that the younger generation is continuing the momentum in terms of what we need to do, the momentum of unity, of harmony, of peace, of togetherness. The younger generation, listening, learning, growing, maturing, they're the ones, they're going to be the foundations. My generation, when it comes to peace, when it comes to equal opportunity, when it comes to understanding each other's differences, long gone. That opportunity does not exist. We're too stubborn. We're too selfish. We're too ignorant. We're too stuck in our ways to really learn and come together between unity and love and all those type of things. We're just too stubborn. We're just too old to change our ways. I'm speaking about my generation. I'm speaking about the generation after me. I'm speaking about the generation before me. There's just too many of us who, once again, who are too ignorant and selfish and me into me-ish to go ahead and do that. So I'm hoping the generation can go ahead and take those lessons and learn from each other and learn from other folks on the other side of the tracks, on the other side of the street, other side of the community who might not look like them, who might have a different skin tone, who might have a different political affiliation, who might love someone differently than they do. So I hope that every, well, those people get together and start moving this forward, moving this world into a better place of understanding, unity, and love. I'm hoping, I'm praying, because for my generation, the generation before and after, it is a lost cause. So there you go. A lot of things happening in the world of sports that I want to talk about. I'm recording this on a Tuesday evening right here in my in my abode in Northwest in Northwest Washington, D.C. Yeah, I wish. In uh, Northwest Las Vegas, just got done watching Georgetown. My Georgetown Hoyas whoop up on Coppin State. I think the final score was 316 to 44. Another HBCU uh, school that can't play basketball at a high level. But those type of things I'll get to on my next podcast. There's an article that I read 
concerning uh, something dealing with college football. I'm going to get into that in my next podcast. NBA is going to be starting in less than two weeks. I'm going to get into that on my next podcast. And also, I'm saving all of this material for December 10th. That's my next scheduled date for me to put out a podcast. And the reason why I'm saying this is because this is my also special dedication of a show that time for a historical event for me that happened 57 and 54 years ago. One happened in Los Angeles, California. The other one happened in, what is happening? Oh yeah, Madison, Wisconsin. Two of my heroes, two of my all-time heroes, historical heroes, Otis Redding and Sam Cooke. So I'll get into all of those things on my next podcast. So this is mainly going to be football-centric. This is mainly going to be discussing the NFL, and that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be discussing the NFL week 13 moving forward, recapping, looking back at what happened. And I guess you could say the team of the weekend, or I guess the team of the NFL had to be your Cleveland Browns. Jeez. The most impressive win in week 13, I would say so, especially when you're speaking about the beatdown that the Cleveland Browns put on the Tennessee Titans. Oh my goodness gracious. Look, Cleveland came into the game with a 7-0 record. They were undefeated against teams with a losing with a losing record, but they were 1-3 against teams with a winning record. Speaking about the blowout that happened at the hands of Pittsburgh and Baltimore and their loss at home to, uh, to Las Vegas. So because of that, I was sitting up there thinking to myself, well, damn, you know, this is more, and I discussed this on my last podcast, this is more of a, uh, what, you know, who's, what game is more important? Who, what team is going to have to take this game more importantly? What does it mean? And I was mainly focusing on the Cleveland Browns because if you took a look at the Tennessee Titans, here was a team that was 8-3 and three in first place in the AFC South. They had just come off two impressive victories, one in overtime against the Baltimore Ravens on the road. Then they went ahead and they beat up on the Indianapolis Colts to revenge one of their losses earlier in the season. So coming in, Derrick Henry was on the roll. I thought the defense was playing well. So I thought if you're speaking about what team has more to prove, Tennessee or Cleveland, I was going to go with the Tennessee Titans, excuse me, with the um, um, Cleveland Browns. But man, that was a beatdown of some mythical proportion in the first half. If the Cleveland Browns play like that in the, if they can maintain or even come close to the way they played in the first half of that game against Tennessee, woo, especially the way Pittsburgh right now is, I don't know if they're, I don't know what you would call it. They were unimpressive a couple of weeks ago against Dallas. They were unimpressive uh, uh, last week. And then finally it got to them that they lost their first game of the season to the uh, Washington football teams. I mean, give it up for my squad right there for, going ahead on the road and beating Pittsburgh 23-17. to But Pittsburgh, yeah, they were coming in and they were undefeated, this, that, and the other, but they didn't look like world beaters. I mean, their defense was great. Roethlisberger was playing well, but there were just too many games against bad teams leading up to where, you know, the thought of going 14-0, 15-0, or even finishing the regular season, you know, undefeated, it was like, I don't think that's going to be happening. And finally... With a lack of concentration, with a lack of focus late in the game, they lost their first game of the season to Washington. Doesn't mean that they're going to be out of the playoffs. Doesn't mean that Mike Tomlin needs to be fired. Doesn't mean that all of a sudden this season's going down the drain. But maybe it's just a wake-up call. So there's no more undefeated teams. But if the Cleveland Browns can play the way they played in the first half against the Pittsburgh Steelers, the way they've been looking in the last couple of games... um. 
Cleveland, I mean, could we be speaking about an AFC championship between the Kansas City defending champions and the Cleveland Browns? Could we be talking about Baker Mayfield going up against Patrick Mahomes? Interesting. Interesting. So Cleveland completed their second four-game winning streak of the year, clinched their first winning season since 2007, 41-35. Road victory over the Tennessee Titans. Again, they scored 38 points in the first half, breaking the franchise record for points in the first half. Again, led at halftime, 38-7. And the Browns, right from the get-go, man, right from the beginning, they set the tone. They forced Derrick Henry to fumble for the first time. This season, they scored on their first six possessions. They began with a field goal, and then it was like touchdown, 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 touchdown. Ba-boom, ba-bing, ba-bam, ba-boom, ba-bam. Cody Parkley, Park, Parkey kicked a 27-yard field goal after an eight-play 66-yard drive that took up four minutes and 17 seconds to make it 3 nothing. All right, cool, fine. Jarvis Landry. Then caught a two-yard pass from Mayfield after a nine-play, 59-yard drive that took up four minutes and 32 seconds to make it 10-0. All right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's how the scoring went for the first quarter. Then in the second quarter, offensive tackle Kendall Lamb caught a one-yard pass from Mayfield after a six-play, 21-yard drive, 313, taking off the clock to make it 17-0. What in the hell is going on here? What's going on with the Cleveland Browns? 17-0. Goddamn, this, that, and the other. Then... Tennessee came back to make a 17-7. Okay, there we go. Now we're starting to get some things going. All right, now we've got a ball game. Now Tennessee has finally woken up. Now we're going to, holy shit, Donovan Peoples-Jones. 75-yard touchdown pass from Baker Mayfield to make it 24-7. And I mean, that man was wide open. I mean, wide open. So it was just like, damn. I mean, this was Cleveland's first road victory over a team with a winning record since September of last season, 2019. And Baker Mayfield was elite and a half the first two quarters on Sunday. I mean, forget Aaron Rodgers, forget Patrick Mahomes, forget Russell Wilson, forget all everybody else. That first half, Baker Mayfield was Mahomeyish, was Rogerish, was early Joe Montanish. I don't know about all that, but he was he was something else. He finished the day completing 25 passes and 33 attempts, 334 yards for a touchdown, the single best passer game rating, 147 of his career. First half, he was 20 of 25. 20 completions, 25 attempts for 290 yards and four touchdowns in the first half. No, no, no. I'm not talking about Patrick Mahomes. No, no, no. I'm not talking about Aaron Rodgers. No, 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 no. Very funny. I'm not talking about Dwayne Haskins. Ha, ha, ha. I'm speaking about Baker flipping Mayfield. He completed 12 of his, of his first 14 passes, and one of those incompletions was a drop on the opening drive by Peoples-Jones. That would have given Mayfield, what, five touchdown passes in the first half? So everybody played well. The wide receivers were getting wide open. That double move that uh, Peoples-Jones made on the on that um 75-yard pass. I mean, the cornerback for Tennessee, they, he didn't know if, if that guy was coming or going. The offensive line played well. I mean, Mayfield dropped back 33 times. He, was, he wasn't sacked once. He had just one QB hit on him. Mayfield was the star of the game by far for Cleveland. I mean, everybody was speaking about, well, at least I was, was speaking about the running back showdown that never materialized between two of the best running backs in the game going on today. Speaking about Nick Chubb, speaking about Derrick Henry, that was a dud, that was a bust. I mean, Nick Chubb was nice. 
ran for 80 yards, 18 carries, one touchdown. But you take away the longest run of almost 30 yards, we're speaking about a guy who averaged around three yards per attempt in 17 carries. Not exactly what we say lighting it up. And I'm not here to say that Nick Chubb's a choker or this, that, and the other. But again, it was all about ball control. I always thought it was going to be about, you know, who was going to control the ball more and this, that, and the other. And really, it was going to be a game that was going to be won between the trenches and the running back position. Not so much putting the emphasis on the quarterbacks. Ryan Tannehill, he's a solid quarterback without question. But his reliance on Derrick Henry is prominent. Same thing with Baker Mayfield. Not saying that he's going to be Alex Smith in terms of his game management skills or the responsibilities, but mainly I thought it was a situation where the Browns made this leap to where they are, mainly on the backs of Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb, speaking of backs, running backs. But again, it was all about Baker Mayfield today and probably the biggest game of the season so far. And to limit Derrick Henry, if you're the Cleveland defense, to limit Derrick Henry to 15 touches and only 60 yards and no touchdowns rushing. I mean, wow. How about that? Look, Baker Mayfield, the past two weeks, guy's playing like a top QB quarterback. I'm not two weeks. Two weeks. I didn't say MVP. Just because y'all are used to having me put a new candidate for MVP that's a quarterback in my podcast every week. No, I'm not going there. I'm not going to include Baker Mayfield. I learned my lesson starting off with Russell Wilson. I learned my lesson starting off after the game against Seattle with with, uh, Cam Newton. I learned my lesson with Josh Allen, even though he played well and he played very well yesterday against Buffalo on Monday Night Football. I made my point not to go there when I got intoxicated with the play of Kyler Murray too much into what went down in their game against Buffalo where he completed that Hail Mary pass. And I was speaking about it, the Arizona Cardinals do this, that, and the other, and they win the NFC West, and all of a sudden Kyler Murray should get consideration for the MVP. So I think as far as MVP people who I've been talking about and say you need to be considering and speaking about and all this type of stuff, I think I've named like, you know, 42 quarterbacks so far. I'm not putting Baker Mayfield. I'm not making that mistake again. Baker Mayfield for the past two weeks has been great. Thrown six touchdown passes, posted a 30, 133.7 passer rating. Okay, he fumbled late in the fourth quarter when Tennessee was trying to make that comeback. All right, all right, but this just marked the third time that he's turned the ball over during the team's current six-game hot streak where they've won, what, five out of six or some nonsense like that. He hasn't thrown an interception in the last 156 games or 156 passes. He was also four or five on deep passes on Sunday, and now he's nine of 13 on deep passes in the last three weeks. So Baker Mayfield... I don't know. I I think maybe one of the reasons why Mayfield is playing so well, especially at home, is when you move into the stadium like he has, you know, when you're speaking about those commercials and we get take a glimpse into Baker Mayfield and he's cooking the turkey and he's holding book night and uh, book the book club there and, you know, his wife or his girlfriend or whatever, you know, forgot to do some things and he's got to pass security and all of those type of things. So with Baker Mayfield really taking learning his surroundings and learning his home stadium to a new level and actually living there I think that speaks volumes on why he's been so efficient and why his level of play has risen so much as quarterback of the Browns what what huh he doesn't that's a yeah I know it's a commercial but what he doesn't live there 
Oh, that's just a... Oh. Oh, so he lives... He lives in the house. Oh. <sighs> Shit. Well, you know what? Hey, Mayfield is still, you know, putting up some good numbers. I think it's more it's just maturity, man. I think he's finally at 25. He's finally gotten to that stage where... I mean, when he first came into the league, I mean, he was brash and he was bold and he was cocky and he was starting drama and it was all about a lot of him and a lot of immaturity. And, and I just think naturally he reached the point and failure will do this for you. And I don't know exactly what happened. I, you know, sometimes getting, getting married straightens a guy out. I don't know if he has any children or anything like that, but sometimes when you reach that point in your life, I don't know, I've never been married and never have any kids, but I've heard that once you become a family man, that some of that other bullshit kind of just falls by the wayside and Mr. Macho Macho Man, I want to be a macho man, not no, oh yeah, macho man with Miss Elizabeth, I'm not talking about that macho man, oh yeah, brother, I'm talking about the type of macho man where you just kind of put away all of that other nonsense and bullshit about what this person says about you and what that person says about you and you're trying to, you know, and feuds, and you're trying to win nameless, you know, bullshit feuds or anything like that. You know, you're just worried about one thing. You know, you, you just come to the realization that, wow, you know, maybe when it's not all about me, maybe when it's not all focused about me, maybe when I don't put all the attention on me, and maybe if I don't go up there with an agenda in terms of what I want to say, and I want to be brash, and I want to be cool, and I want to be this and that and the other, Baker Mayfield is learning how to be a leader. Baker Mayfield now is all about, hey, look, man, you know, I'm just trying to win football games because I've been to the other side where we haven't been looking, winning football games where I've been yapping and popping off and I look like a fool and I look like a clown. And finally, I've seen the light in terms of, of what I look like and what I sounded like. And you can see it in his play. You can see it in his uh, press conferences. You can see it how he interacts with teammates. You can see it when the other players score a touchdown and the way he celebrates with them, not drawing attention to himself, but putting the shine, putting the spotlight. The way now that he's deflecting a lot of the praise and a lot of the glory, taking what he needs to take, of course, but also making sure that they get spread around in a responsible way. I mean, that's part of leadership. That's part of growing. You're a, you're the most visible employee in a, in a billion dollar franchise. And finally, I think Baker Mayfield is starting to act like it. And I think it's also the real realization that to be as good as this team can be, the running game is going to supersede anything that I'm going to do. And it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, he needs to take the Troy Aikman, Troy Aikman, uh, Aikman approach. Hey, look, you know, while other people, while other players in my era were throwing the ball around, you know, 45 and 50 times, I was quite happy to hand the ball off to Emmett Smith, Smith, win Super Bowls, and get me into the Hall of Fame. And oh yeah, I was still a pretty damn good passer. My numbers might not have been as fantastic, my numbers might not have been as high, but we won Super Bowls, we won championships, I'm a legend, and now I'm in the Hall of Fame. So for those who want to go out there and think that because I didn't put up Tom Brady-like numbers or Peyton Manning-type numbers or anything like that, that somehow, someway, I don't deserve it, fuck you. Three world championships and uh, part of the dynasty of the 90s with the Dallas Cowboys. And I think that Baker Mayfield is trying to come at playing football 
in the NFL trying to become the quarterback that way. Hey, look, when I first came into the league, I wanted to throw for 50 touchdowns and 5,000 yards and be this guy and do this and do that and make Hulu commercials and be the man and be the star and be the superstar and this, that, and the other. And I was going to be tough. I was going to be James Dean. I was going to be cool. I was going to be Paul Walker. I was going to be ain't nobody fuck with me. I'll take you down to Chinatown, motherfucker, all that type of stuff. He learned that it's like, man, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good with just winning games. I'm not going to get too high. I'm not going to get too low. I'm just going to be cool. And I'm just going to do what I do. It's, it's all right to be confident. But there's a difference between being confident and being cocky. Very few people can pull that off. To be confident and cocky and then be successful and be universally loved amongst your teammates and coaches, the community and such. Especially when you're speaking about a team sport. You might be able to do it in an individual sport, but in a team sport, it's much different. And I think that's one of the things that Baker Mayfield is finding out. And he's finding out to his advantage in terms of his progression into becoming a quarterback who can be the quarterback of a team that has the dreams and aspirations of being a Super Bowl championship type team. If he brings any type of success to the Cleveland Browns in terms of them really vying for a championship and, you know, the wildest dreams of winning a championship. I mean, that's something where it's kind of like, hey, man, you'll be you'll be having a stadium named after you. You'll be having a <laughs> you'll be having your statue right next to Jim Brown and Otto Graham, all those other all those other mythical figures in Cleveland Browns lore. If you can do that. And, and guess what? If Nick Chubb can be the leading star of that performance, then that's okay. That's okay. That's one of the perks about playing quarterback. <laughs> so, you know, I think Mayfield is learning that, and he's learning that the right way. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, the Cleveland Browns completed a sweep of the AFC South. They beat the Titans on Sunday, as I mentioned before, 41-35, along with the Jacksonville Jaguars, 27-25. Earlier in the season, they beat the Houston Texans 10-7, along with the Indianapolis Colts, up until the victory on the road against Tennessee, their game against Indianapolis, where they won 32-23. That was the only thing that you could hang their hat on in terms of this is the reason why we think we're a legit playoff contender. Uh, So they've completed the sweep of the AFC South. They're currently the fifth seed, which is the number one spot for the wild card. And... One of the reasons why I mentioned the sweep of the AFC South is that it's going to be likely that if they maintain where they are right now, that their first playoff game, and it seems like 255 years, will be against one of the teams from the AFC South, mainly either the Titans or the Indianapolis Colts. So we will see what's going on. So are they now considered threats to the Kansas City the defending champions or the Pittsburgh Steelers. I don't know, man. As I mentioned before, Pittsburgh is catering just a little bit, but it's a long season. Um, they played, it's been a kooky couple of weeks for the Pittsburgh Steelers, so they've been throwing off their rhythm a little bit. I don't know if that's the main reason for losing to Washington, but they just haven't looked as dominant as they had before. But, you know, Baltimore fucked all that up with that COVID-19 shenanigans going on for Thanksgiving, but... Cleveland, well, are they legitimate contenders? We'll see. 
I think Pittsburgh's ultimately going to get it together. Kansas City is still Kansas City. When everything is all said and done and you have a team that just won the championship, you have the most dynamic offense in the NFL and you have the best quarterback and best player in the NFL in Patrick Mahomes. I think that the defending champions are the clear-cut favorites. But again, as I mentioned before, man, I mean, there's been plenty of teams that have ran roughshod through the regular season, even teams coming off the Super Bowl wins, even teams that are, were dynasty, dynasty types that, as the movie said, on any, any given Sunday, who knows? We've seen teams with 15-1 records lose in the first round, the first time they, they played. We've seen teams that were surefire, no doubt about us, that were going to come out of the AFC or the NFC and represent that conference in the Super Bowl, win, lose in their first uh, playoff round, we've seen great Hall of Fame quarterbacks like Joe Montana and um, Steve Young and Tom Brady and Peyton Manning and all of these guys. They've suffered, John Elway, they've suffered defeats in the first round where everybody thought that they were going to be marching on to the Super Bowl and it was going to be easy peasy for them. So who knows? Who knows? Kansas City looked good, but they weren't overly dominant against a pretty good defense in Denver, against Denver. So on any given Sunday, man, you never know. And who thought that the Cleveland Browns, at least in the first half, were going to pull a performance out of their ass like they did with that one. Now, the key moving forward, of course, to maintain the offensive rhythm, Kevin Stefanski doing a fabulous job, have to put him in consideration for the coach of the year. So the offense doing well, you got the running game going, the... uh, Loss of Odell Beckham Jr. hasn't hurt the Browns at all. You might have, you might even make the argument that it's even, even improved the offense because now Mayfield doesn't have to concentrate on targeting Beckham Jr. so much and he can spread around the sugar, as Steve Lavin would like to say. So because of that, maybe that improves the Cleveland Browns offense. But the key was going to, the key is going to be the defense. You have one of the best defensive ends, one of the best players. Really, in football, and Miles Garrett, he seems to be rounding into shape after, as he said, COVID-19 whooped his ass. He seems to be coming back, and he seems to be getting into shape. But look, 38-7, first half, awesome, fantastic. Browns, yip, 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 yip. But in the second half, they were outscored by Tennessee 28-3. Now, you could say that's just a natural letdown after a team gets up 38-7. But uh, still... 28 to 3 is still 28 to 3 to pull them within one score with 28 seconds left. And, you know, it really could be a good thing for Cleveland because it gives Stefanski and his coordinators a little something to come back on on Wednesday and say, hey, look, y'all, before we start, you know, trying to figure out the uh, routes for the Super Bowl parade next, and, you know, before you start wanting to do the Cleveland Browns shuffle, the Super Bowl shuffle, you know, there's some work here that definitely needs to be taken care of. Coming from what I heard from Baker Mayfield, one of the leaders, the face of the squad, he made that abundantly clear that, you know what, the second half, eh, need a little work. So it seems to me the new, improved, mature Baker Mayfield is not going to let the first half all of a sudden go to his head and affect what comes down the pike uh, moving forward. I'm not saying that the Browns are going to do one way or the other, but see a little bit of maturity to say, hey, you know what, 38-7, to 7, I think they're taking the heart more of the 28-3 to 3 uh, deficit that they had in the second half or the uh, the score in the second half for Tennessee to let them know that we still got to keep working. 
we still got to keep grinding and do all those type of things. So the defense is going to be the key. Now, they're missing one of their best cornerbacks in Denzel Ward from Ohio State. And Ryan Tannehill threw for almost 400 yards on 45 pass attempts with three touchdowns and only one interception. We're speaking about Ryan Tannehill here, mainly a play-action system type passer. Going to have to tighten that up. Going to have to tighten that up for Cleveland. So for the upcoming games, I guess... Because as we speak right now, I think Baltimore, I think Baltimore is leading Dallas twenty-four to ten. I want to hurry up and record this and get this over with because I might have to work tomorrow, and I still haven't finished some of the stuff that I want to talk about for the podcast that I'm going to be recording for Thursday or Friday. But um, right now, I believe that they're ahead of Dallas in the fourth quarter, early on in the fourth quarter, twenty-four to ten. So this. Upcoming game, the next game, everybody talks about, well, at least I talked about Tennessee, 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 Tennessee for Cleveland in terms of where they stand, how to define them, what their chances, what's really going on with this team. And we thought Tennessee, Tennessee, Tennessee was going to be that marker, was going to be that barometer. Next Monday night against Baltimore, Baltimore hangs on and wins. Here's a chance for Cleveland to go ahead and get revenge from the 38-6 humiliation that they suffered at the hands of Baltimore. Baltimore is not currently playing the same way that they played at the beginning of the season. And now I think expectations from the Ravens' side have been a bit tempered after the 14-2 and regular season. And I think some of the domination or some of the expectations or things that they wanted to achieve in terms of solidifying themselves as one of the elite squads in the NFL. I think that's been tampered just a little bit because as we speak, they're believe, I believe they're on the outside looking in. So this is going to be a game where next Monday night, Cleveland and Baltimore, which is going to be extremely important for both teams, Tennessee versus Cleveland this past weekend advantage in terms of who has more to prove the Cleveland Browns this upcoming Monday between the game between Cleveland and the Baltimore Ravens, who has the most to prove? I think it's a push. I think it's a tie on that one. Both of them have significant um, reasons to go out there and do well, to do really well. So you've got the Ravens. Then after that, you're taking a look at the New York Giants who have won five games in a row. Then you take a look and they have the New York Jets. <laughs> but hey man, Andy given Sunday, then they finish the season at home against Pittsburgh. So, this is, I mean, all right, now they're 9-3. Hey, man, what the hell? Well, they go, yeah, they're 9-3. So we're speaking about 10-3. Let's just, let's just go somewhat center, let's say independent center. We're not going center left. We're not going center right. Let's just say they beat Baltimore. Woohoo! Hip, hip, hooray! They lose on the road to New York, come down a little bit. Then they beat the Jets. And then, for instance, if Pittsburgh is already clinched a playoff berth in terms of where they're going to be seated. They go ahead and they beat the Steelers. So we're speaking about a team that could be three and one. And we're talking about a team that could finish the regular season 12 and four. If you're the Cleveland Browns, you'll take that. And you're speaking about now. I mean, let's just forget about the other teams that we beat before. You're speaking about now. You're speaking about a situation near the end of the season. What happened in week one? What happened in week four? What happened in week eight? Even what's happening now currently really doesn't matter. 
I mean, it's nice, it's sweet, it's wonderful, but but, but now we're talking about teams. Where are you injury-wise? Where are you game plan-wise? Where are you now with some of the free agent acquisitions in terms of them blending uh, with the teams? Where are you now with the rookies that you drafted? and Are they really ready to contribute heading down the stretch and going into the playoffs if you're in that position for one of these teams? Now we're talking about the nitty-gritty. Now we can start making some more profound type of prognostications about what these teams are going to be doing moving forward if you're speaking about Cleveland and Tennessee and Indianapolis and the AFC and and Baltimore and uh, Pittsburgh and uh, Kansas City and such and Las Vegas and such and the NFC now you can start saying with a little bit more conviction now you can start saying with a little bit more clarity hey I think that you know the Green Bay Packers are this. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are that. The Washington football team, the New York Giants are this and that. We're speaking about the, um, well, the Chicago Bears get the hell out of here. We're speaking about the NFC West where we have the Seattle Seahawks and everything. They're going through some turmoil. They're going through some possibilities in terms of which way they're going to be um, going in terms of going up toward really being competitors for the championship or continuing to spiral spiral down and we'll have a better understanding in a couple of weeks for instance uh seattle's loss against the new york giants was that embarrassing horrible i can't believe that they lost at home to a team from the nfc least this is just a this is just a joke this is just a clown show this that and the other or in a couple of weeks they're going to sit back and say hey you know what the way uh, New York is playing right now, the way they've gotten things together, the way that defense has even improved even more, the way that they're playing right now, that win at Seattle wasn't as you know eye-popping. That wasn't as surprising as we thought it was going to be. So those are the things. This is when it starts getting good, man. Right near Christmas time, a couple of more games left before the end of the regular season. Now, the first couple of chapters of this season's book has been written. We've gotten the plot. We've gotten the foundation. We've gotten the opening statements. We've gotten everything like that. Now, in the NFL, now it's going to get juicy. Now it's going to start getting really interesting. Now, NFL Red Zone is going to be taking on a whole new way of looking. Because now we're going to really learn some things. Now we're going to get down and really learn which teams are legit, which teams are phony, which teams are good, which teams are bad, which team is which. When we're speaking about teams with aspirations and are in position to make the playoffs. Now, now we start learning the truth. Cleveland Browns. I'll say this right now, surprise, surprise. When it comes to those playoffs... I think they're the truth. Wendell's World in Sports. 
I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste. Wassalam alaikum, my brothers and sisters. I hope everybody is doing fantastic. Konnichiwa. Shalom. What is happening? What is going on? Beautiful day to be living, right? Am I right? Que pasa, mi amigos? Me amo, Wendell Wallace. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir. Wendell's World of Sports. Man, what's going on with this weekend in the NFL? What's going on with the Seattle Seahawks? What is happening with the Seattle Seahawks? What should we be thinking about? out there in the Pacific Northwest about the Seattle Seahawks. Terrible loss. I know about five minutes ago I was speaking about hmm, a couple of weeks. We don't know what's going to be happening with this loss with the uh, Seattle Seahawks to the New York Giants. It could be a situation where, hey, we underestimated how great the Giants were and that loss wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. Or we could be looking at the situation where it's like, wow, how the fuck did the Seattle Seahawks lose to the New York Giants? Well, that's the way I'm going with this one. How in the world? When you're the Seattle Seahawks, you're sitting in first place in the AFC West coming into the game. You're at home. You're against the team from the NFC Least. How in the world do you lose 17-12 to to the Giants? Now they're in second place in the NFC West. One game behind the LA Rams who took care of their business in beating Arizona. Another team that's fading fast. Lost to a team at home. The NFC East. Oh, wow, but Wendell, the Giants have won five in a row. Oh, wow, Wendell, the, your Washington Snyder skins, as you say, just beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. Put some respect, put some depth, put some love on the NFC East. NFC least, I don't think so. Not after these victories, slow your roll, Jackson Brown. Hey, man, look, the, the, the win that the Giants had against Seattle, again, at home, Again, in a game that counts. Again, in a time period where we're trying to better define what these teams are in terms of their chances of winning a championship, in terms of their chances of being legit and all these other things, for the Seattle Seahawks to lose to the New York Giants, a team from the NFC East that's starting a career backup quarterback and a second-string running back, unacceptable, inexcusable. This was a situation where I think, what, this was the first win that a team from the NFC least had over a team with a winning record. Now they flipped the script again. They, you know, improved it in terms of uh, the uh, Washington football team going ahead and doing what they did against the Pittsburgh Steelers. But come on, man. For Seattle, that's that's just inexcusable. Colt McCoy with 13 for 22, 105 yards, one touchdown, one interception. But during the end of that ball game, when Seattle needed that ball back, here's Kurt, here's um, Colt McCoy making passes for first downs late in the fourth quarter. What's up with that? Wayne uh, Goldman ran for 135 yards on 16 carries. That's eight and a half yards per carry. Alfred Morris, former Washington football player, former Dallas Cowboy. I didn't even know he even had an NFL career. He ran 40 yards on eight carries. That's five yards per carry. Hey, and I want to sit here and everybody, you know, at the beginning of the season, Heading up to the midway point. Everybody was like, man, you know, the Seahawks, yeah, their offense is legit, and DK Metcalf is starting to become an elite wide receiver, and Russell Wilson is the league's MVP, and he's fantastic, and he's wonderful, and the, you know, Tyler, Tyler Lockett is becoming a, you know, a really great possession receiver, and Russell Wilson, and Russell Wilson, and Russell Wilson. The only thing that gives me pause, the only thing that gives me hesitation in terms of claiming that Seattle, even when they were undefeated at 5-0, and even when they were comfortably in the lead in the NFC West, even when they were you know, considered one of the better teams in the league the first five, six, seven, eight weeks of the season, the only thing that gave people 
who were making these prognostications, the experts, the only thing that gave them pause was their defense and how bad they were, especially when you're speaking about the secondary, the fact that a lot of their secondary men were injured. Jamal Adams was injured with a groin injury, and he missed some time. The defensive front couldn't put any pressure on the uh, quarterbacks, and you had guys like Cam Newton and Josh Allen having career days in terms of the season throwing the football and so everybody was speaking everybody was thinking if the Seahawks are going to lose the main thing would be because of their defense and while against the Giants they weren't great especially when you consider the personnel that the Giants were having on the field at the key positions 17 points should be enough for Seattle to go ahead and win that football game at home yeah, I know the Giants are young, Jabril Peppers, and, uh, you know, the, the kid that was drafted early by the New York Jets, and he was a bust there, so we go to the Giants, and he's playing well. Leonard Williams from USC, you know, he seems to be resurrecting his career, and all of these other things. The Giants are young, and the defensive coordinator, I'm quite sure he's going to be getting some dark horse looks at uh, potential head coaching jobs if he continues to uh, have the defense for New York be as successful as it has been in the all, all of that stuff is great. All of that stuff is fine. All of that stuff is wonderful. The bottom line is the Giants are in the NFC East. Number two, the Giants had Colt McCoy starting for, I think, the first time in a couple of years. They didn't have Saquon Barkley, who was out since opening day. There is no reason why, again, inexcusable, unacceptable, why the Seattle Seahawks were so inept against a pretty good Giants defense. They've done better against better. So... They didn't score a touchdown, speaking of the Seahawks against the Giants. They didn't score a touchdown until there was about six minutes left to go in the game and they were trailing 17-5. to They were 4 of 13 on their third down attempts. And Russell Wilson was sacked five times. I've mentioned before that one of the things because of uh, Wilson's brilliance, especially at the beginning of this season, was the fact that we kind of overlooked how porous the offensive line was, especially when you're speaking about three-fifths of that offensive line their players were settled with injuries. And in some instances, you had players who were third stringers, like the backups, like I believe one game, uh, the center position for Seattle, both the first and the second string centers were injured. Then you're speaking about at the right tackle, they've had three injuries to their right tackle. So it's a makeshift offensive line for the Seahawks. And again, it was masked over a little bit because of what uh, Russell Wilson was doing and what DK Metcalf was doing. But the inconsistency of the running game uh, is now starting to be a problem and against the Giants again Wilson was sacked five times only once was Seattle able to gain a first down on a drive after Wilson was sacked due to and that was due to a defensive holding penalty against the Giants which uh bailed Seattle out Seattle out on a third and 15 but in all total the Giants defense generated 23 total pressures I don't give a fuck who you are. That's just not going to work. The offense turned the ball over four times, two turnovers on downs, one interception, one fumble, which led to 10 unanswered points by New York all in the second half. So even with the 17 points that the Giants scored, you can't put all of those even on the defense because they weren't put in uh, advantageous situations to be stout and to uh, get the ball back to Seattle's offense without scoring, without allowing any points scored. So... You know, Russell Wilson didn't play at the level that Seattle needed him to play the win. I mentioned before, I think him along with Kyler Murray are the two guys who I would say have the most responsibility in how well 
the team performs. Well, he was 27 to 43, 263 yards, one touchdown, one interception. Again, he carried the ball seven times for 45 yards, but again, he was sacked five times. So that was a combined loss for 47. So if we're speaking about college, he was a negative two in the Russell in the uh, fumble department. And I mentioned before, losing a fumble. The third multi-turnover game in the past five for Wilson when you throw in the fumble and the interception. So, I don't know. Seattle can't overcome. I mean, the Seattle defense is going to play like it did, and it wasn't dominant. But again, you if I'm the defense, I'm like, yeah, man, I'm kind of expecting you guys to score more than 12 fucking points. And again, the 17 points that were scored, 10 of them were off turnovers. I mean, GD, wow. What the hell's going on here? I, I don't know exactly what happened to Seattle after the Buffalo Bills game four games ago. I don't know if Buffalo stole some of their mojo. I don't know if they left their, uh, I don't know if they had too many chicken wings out there in Buffalo, which kind of settled them for the time being. I don't know what's going on, but ever since that game where they lost 44 to 34 and the game wasn't as close as the score indicated to the Bills, and many people were sitting there talking about, well, you know, that was a 9 a.m. game for Seattle and they had to go from Seattle to New York, Western New York, and the trip and all that type of stuff. And, you know, every team, no matter who you are, except for the 72 Dolphins and the uh, 2007 New England Patriots, is going to have a bad game where they lose. So I'm not going to read way too much into that. But ever since that game, man, Seattle's been 2-2. Two and two. After the game against uh, what was it? Buffalo, 44-34, dropped their record to 6-2. and two. All right, cool. But since then... Their offense has averaged 19 points a game. They've scored 28 points against Arizona, and then that's it. The first seven games, they were averaging 33 points a game. They were 6-1. and one. During that span, the offense scored over 30 points six times, scored over 34 points five times. Damn. So it's like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, offensive line was definitely a problem. They've given up the second most pressures this season at 199. But still, they were still scoring points. But as I mentioned before, when you have centers going out in back-to-back weeks, forcing them to use a rookie, Damian Lewis in one game at that position. He hadn't played that in his entire career. It's going to be a problem eventually. And again, Seattle starter at the right tackle, Jamarco Jones. But what he's doing right now, that's their third string right tackle because of injuries. So DK Metcalf, he's been quiet in three of his last four games. Yeah, he was fantastic against Philadelphia. What, 10 passes for 177 yards and everything? But Jalen Ramsey stole some of his mojo in their last matchup against them four weeks ago. Part of that 2-2 two and two stretch that we're talking about. And ever since then, if, again, if you take away the 13 catch for 177-yard uh, night that he had on Monday Night Football to the Philadelphia Eagles, he's caught four passes for 28 yards. After a combined... 24 catches for 269 yards and three touchdowns against San Francisco and Buffalo. And we were speaking about DK, DK Metcalf being that next guy, being that next franchise receiver. Now look at him. Now look what he's doing. I'm not saying that this is going to be D, DK Metcalf, just this, that, and the other, but you know, against the Rams, the Giants, and Arizona, he combined for 14 catches and 154 yards. One touchdown. You need a little bit more than that. During that stretch of your DK Metcalf. Now the responsibilities have grown a little bit more. So again, the defense has played well enough to win games for Seattle. This is not a defense problem. 
The past four games, they've only allowed 18 points a game. When the first seven, when you're scoring 33, you would think that the defense only giving up 18 would be decent enough, would be good enough. The first eight games, they were giving up 30, and they were 6-2. and two. Now they're giving up 18, and they're 2-2. Two and two. Jamal Adams has played up to expectations the last few games. This last four, he's had 30 tackles, 21 of them solo. He's had four sacks. He had 11 tackles, eight solo against the Giants, so he did his job. He also had a sack against them on Sunday, so he he did his job. The trade for Carlo Dunlap to add to more pressure, uh, to put more pressure on the quarterback, on the opposing quarterback, that's work. So you've had some players come back from injury, so the defense has improved. So just when the defense is starting to be decent, the offense is going into the tank. So where do you go from here if you're uh, the Seattle Seahawks? Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you can go with us and be with us and just go wherever we want to go when speaking about what's going down in the world of sports. Taking a look at the remaining schedule here because it's like after the yelling and the shouting and the screaming and everything is done concerning the Seattle Seahawks, if you're a Seahawk fan, it's like we still got four more games to go. Where do we go from here? What are we going to be talking about? Well, they have a pseudo-bye week where they play at home against the New York Jets. Then they've got Washington on the road, then the Rams. Then they finish off the season at San Francisco, who Nick Mullins is still the quarterback. Dallas, they're going to be in any type of uh, chase for the for the playoffs. So who knows what's going to be happening in that game. And look, anything less than 2-2. Two and two, I mean, you've got the Jets, you got the Snyder Skins, you got the Rams, and they got the 49ers. I would be expecting 3-1, and 2-2 two and two possibly, but anything less. I'm taking a look here. Let's just play the, op- the, the ultimate optim- uh, pessimist. You beat the Jets, you lose on the road to Washington, you lose to the Rams, and then you lose on the road to San Francisco. If they go 1-3 and three and miss the playoffs, then they don't deserve it, man. Your team doesn't deserve it, Seahawks fans. I don't want to hear any of that bullshit about, well, 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 nah, man. If you can't do anything better than 2-2, two and two, you don't deserve to be in the playoffs. And what a shame, what a shame it would be because I love watching Russell Wilson play. And you can say now with the way Aaron Rodgers is playing with the way Patrick Mahomes is playing. Russell Wilson, again, is not going to be winning the MVP. And not only is he not going to be winning the MVP, I don't think the man's going to get a vote again. So the narrative that I was saying, one of the reasons why I was speaking about in all my earlier podcasts earlier in the uh, NFL season on why Russell Wilson was the guy, the front runner for the MVP because the narrative was so attractive in terms of, wow, here's a guy who been one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL for the last couple of seasons. He's been elite. He was one of the three or four best quarterbacks last season in the NFL. And now we have a situation where this is the first time that, you know, Russell Wilson has really been in the spotlight in terms of being that guy. Some of the work, some of the responsibilities that he has in terms of the success that the Seattle Seahawks have being placed on his shoulders, that's really starting to come into light. And yeah, last season we saw Lamar Jackson do what he did. That story's now over. Yeah, two years ago we saw what uh, Patrick Mahomes did in the season and the numbers that he put up. Yeah, that's great, but that's now old news and we're starting to take him for granted and Lamar has come back to earth a little bit, so we're not going to be really interested in him. What's the next story that we can get into? What's the next thing? What's new? What's fresh? What's something that uh, we can uh, we can uh, put in the oven and bake it? It smells tasty. 
And that was the story with Russell Wilson. But again, over the last four or five weeks, Wilson has played himself out of the MVP race. And look, I don't think Russell Wilson is, you know, at night, you know, sitting in bed with CR, you know, lamoning and lamenting like, oh, I can't believe I'm not going to be winning the MVP this year. He's more focused on winning games and winning championships. But um, it just looked like it's going to be the same old, same old when it comes to the MVP, right? Mahomes or Rodgers. So in that sense, Russell Wilson has failed in that department, even though I don't think that was something that he was really focused on. But uh, Seattle, I don't know. The Jets, we're not going to learn too much. Unless they, unless they lose or unless they, or, or unless they play like Las Vegas did against them very poorly next weekend. If they do what they're supposed to do, we're not going to learn that much about them in terms of, oh, they've overcome this little skid and this little bump in the road. or we, We're not going to get too much into that. And even, I think, against Washington, I don't think we're going to. Again, unless they lose, I don't think we're going to be being able to, you know, write the story of what type of team the Seattle Seahawks is. It's going to come down to the game against the Los Angeles Rams, especially if the Rams are still in first place and are playing well or winning games uh, to maintain that one-game lead in the NFC West. That's where we're going to start saying, okay, what type of team is Seattle? Are they that team that was considered one of the elites at the first during the first five, six, seven weeks of the season? Or did they start fast and peter out? Time will tell. The Los Angeles Rams, that game against the Rams, that'll show us. But then again, as I mentioned before, man, if you're 1-3, and three, if you're 2-2, two and two, and you don't miss the playoffs, you have no one else to blame, Seattle fans, except your team. Wendell's World and Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Spend a month sending out my special dedication, sending out my love to everybody listening in Canada, everybody listening in North America, anybody listening, everybody listening in Australia, everybody listening in India. I want to give a shout out, special dedication for those who are listening in Santee, those listening in Las Vegas, those who are listening in Vancouver, those who are listening in Sydney, those who are listening in Texas, those who are listening in Enid, Oklahoma, those who are listening in Iraq, those who are listening in Bangladesh, those who are listening all throughout the world. I want to thank you. Thank you so much. Those who are listening in Texas, those who are listening in Pennsylvania. I want to thank you so much. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to go ahead and listen to this podcast. I'd like to say that uh, this is something where 
I try to do the absolutely best job I can anytime the record button is on and I start doing my thing. And I just get into it, man. I start feeling it. I sink into it. I become 100% part of it. And uh, I have a blast. I have a ball. People are talking about, it's so long. It's so long. Let me tell you something, man. These are one of the few things. This is probably right up there in the top three or four things that I love to do the most in my life. This brings me the most joy in terms of uh, what I do throughout my day. Again, I'm not married. I'm not in any type of relationship. I don't have kids, don't have family members out here. So this is one of the things that I very, very much look to. I got the bug in terms of broadcasting a long time ago. And you can ask anybody in the broadcasting business who does this for a living, who communicates, who broadcasts. It's one of the things where it's like a drug. It's almost like we're addicted to it. Almost like a heroin addict needs his heroin, like a alcoholic needs his alcohol, like someone in the cigarettes needs a cigarette. Anytime someone needs to blow off the steam, they go ahead and beat up somebody or they shoot somebody or they strangle somebody or something like that. A high is a high. And anytime I'm doing what I'm doing right now, in terms of talking sports, in terms of talking to you, in terms of communicating, in terms of giving you a little something of me, this is something that I absolutely love. You motherfuckers out there who are complaining that I only do, that I'm doing two, three-hour podcasts, y'all better be lucky that I really don't get into, it and get into it because I'll be talking for eight hours speaking about what's going on in the world of sports, speaking about what's happening in life. But then again, no one will listen, so I have to... <laughs> I have to uh, kind of uh, tamper it down just a little bit. But I thank everybody for listening to Wendell's World and Sports, and there's more to come amongst that. Had a great day at work today. Actually in a classroom with some kids way out there in Mawapa Valley. Had a blast. Always great to get back in the classroom. Always great to be around young folks, the younger folks. So I am doubly pumped up, and Georgetown won against Coppin State today, so man, like I mentioned before, you clowns better be thankful that I'm not going to be doing like a Ted Cruz 48 hours just talking, talking, talking type of deal, which he did a few years ago in Congress, that low-life piece of shit. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. All right, here we go. Speaking about what's going down in the NFL, talked about the surprising playoff-bound Cleveland Browns, speaking about their victory over the Tennessee Titans, what does it mean, Baker Mayfield's maturation process, what does it mean for the ultimate uh, success for the organizations, the Cleveland Browns then moved into the Seattle Seahawks, what's going on with them, they lost control of the lead in the NFC West to the Los Angeles Rams, what does it mean, who's to blame, what's the surprise, speaking about how the defense has improved to the point to where if the offense was playing similar to what they were the first seven, eight games of the season, then Seattle wouldn't have been 2-2 two and two in the last four games. But moving forward, as I mentioned before, they end with the Jets. They end with Washington. They end with the Rams. They end with San Francisco. So we will see, we will see, we will see if the Seattle Seahawks are legit, mainly against the Los Angeles Rams. So you take a look at the NFC playoff standings, the current NFC standings. You have the New Orleans Saints, the New Orleans. Is it New Orleans or New Orleans? Either way, you take a look at it, I guess. New Orleans, they're 10-2, clinched the playoff berth. They're the number one seed. Right behind them, one game is the Green Bay Pacquiao's. The Packers are 9-3. Then in third place, leaders in the NFC West, the 
Los Angeles Rams, they're 8-4. In the NFC East, occupying the number four seed is the New York Giants, 7-5. They have the tiebreaker over the Washington Surprise Skins at 5-7. They beat them twice. So the Giants are the team that hold the number four spot in the current playoff standings. Number five, the first wild card goes to the Seattle Seahawks, eight and four. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are next at seven to five. And rounding out the last playoff spot are the Minnesota Vikings, who are six and six, barely getting by the Jacksonville Jaguars in overtime this past weekend. So, look, the New Orleans Saints, they became the first team in the 2020 wacky NFL season to clinch a playoff spot. They've now won nine consecutive games, including three started by backup quarterback Taysom Hill. Surprise, surprise, I thought it was going to be Jameis Winston being the quarterback once Drew Brees broke 18 ribs. But uh, Sean Payton said, no, I'm good. We signed signed Taysom Hill to a three-year, $21 million contract, and he's supposed to be the heir apparent to Drew Brees whenever he retires at the end of this season, next season, whatever. So, so far, so good. I I guess you consider Taysom Hill Hill as just a better version of Tim Tebow in the pros. Against Atlanta in the 21-16 win, he threw for 232 yards, ran for 83 yards. Um, He's now 3-0, starting the quarterback uh, spot this season. Drew Brees is going to be back sooner rather than later. They can clinch their division, the NFC South standings against Philadelphia. As it's been reported, the Eagles are going to be uh, starting Jalen Hurts at the quarterback for Philly. We'll get into that a little bit later on in the podcast. So I guess you can say, I'm just going to be speaking about the NFC because I think the AFC, I think really in the NFL is pretty clear that the Kansas City defending champions are the best team in the league itself. But when you're speaking about the NFC, who which I think is a better division than the AFC, New Orleans is the best team in the conference right now. Who knows what's going to be happening later on down the line. But as of right now, week 13, going on to week 14 in the NFL, the New Orleans Saints are the best team in the NFC. They have what? I guess you could say they're what? It ranked in the top five in all major defensive categories. They're number one in NFL yards uh, allowed per game. They're number four in points allowed behind Pittsburgh, Baltimore, and Miami. They're number two in rushing yards per game behind Tampa. They're number five in passing yards allowed per game. So the defense is there. The offense, of course, as we know, with Drew Brees, Michael Thomas is starting to roll into shape once Drew Brees returns. The true triple threat option of Taysom Hill as a kickoff returner, as a runner, as a receiver. Option quarterback comes back into play. The offensive line has played well. Alvin Kamara is one of the most complete running backs in the game and a guy who's going to be in consideration for MVP. Oh, there goes Wendell with his MVP consideration bullshit again with another guy. Nah, man, Alvin Kamara, the all-around purpose back for the Saints. They're legit. So offensively, we always knew that the Saints were fine. And now we're taking a look at the defense. Marcus Lattimore from the uh, secondary position, Cam Jordan from the off, on the defensive line, being able to put pressure on the quarterback. The Saints, as of right now, have to be considered behind the champions of Kansas City, the major player when it comes to winning a Super Bowl as of right now. Still hold a one-game lead over Green Bay for the best record and home field advantage throughout the playoffs. As I mentioned before, the Saints are 10-2. and Green Bay is 9-3. Green Bay even beat 
New Orleans on the road earlier in the season, but that was earlier in the season. I'm still love what Aaron Rodgers is doing. Devontae Adams coming back uh, earlier from an earlier injury situation earlier in the season. He's hooked up, and the chemistry between him and Rodgers is second to none. Aaron Jones from the running back position is a beast. The only thing that tempers me from saying that the Green Bay Packers are true, legit Super Bowl contenders is the fact of that defense and the fact that we've seen until Green Bay beats a physical football team, a team that is, you know, that is big, strong. I mean, there's no team like, for instance, say the Tennessee Titans, the way it seemed like everybody on that squad is big. The offensive linemen are big for their position. Derrick Henry is big for his position. A.J. Brown, the wide receiver, is a mammoth type of uh, uh, wide receiver for his size. There really isn't a team like that per se in the NFC which has that type of girth and physicality. Maybe with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the way they mauled the Green Bay Packers. But for the, for the most part, I still think a team that is aggressive, a team that is physical, there's still a little bit too much finesse all around across the board with Green Bay for me to say that no doubt... I think they're on the same level as New Orleans, even though they beat the Saints earlier in the season. I just keep remembering the beatdown that they experienced at the hands of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, moving forward, we'll see. But, you know, a, a team like the New York Giants, I think, could give the Packers real problems moving forward. So we'll see. We'll see. So I still think the New Orleans Saints, number one. What's the, what's the Drew Brees update, you ask, here on Wendell's World of Sports? I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. The Drew Brees update, Ian Rappaport, this is of the NFL Network. He writes, or he reports, that Brees is approaching full health, though he, stays, so, though he says that the Saints may not play him until Week 15's uh, mammoth matchup against Kansas City. And according to Adam Schefter of ESPN, Brees is making good progress in his recovery from 11 fractured ribs and a collapsed lung how does that man breathe without pain and he's eligible to come off injured reserve for new orleans against philadelphia next sunday i doubt that 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 would happen just again just if you take a look at the chaos the dysfunction that is permeating the philadelphia eagles right now the indecision just everything i would go with Taysom Hill one more time. But then again, you know what, man? If the doctors say that he's good to go and this, that, and the other, why not? But, you know, Sean Payton is a guy who's uh, got a few tricks up his sleeve. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The only thing that really scares me, if I were a New Orleans Saints fan, yeah, I just mentioned before, they're top five in defense and they're number one points in this and that and the other. And they got Drew Brees and if Drew Brees, you got Taysom Hill and you got the strong offensive line and you got Alvin Kamara and it looks like Michael Thomas is coming back, hip hip array and the Saints are 10 and 2 and all this kind of stuff and home field advantage. And the only thing amongst all of those positives, the only thing that would scare me if I was a New Orleans Saints fan, referees, and bullshit bad luck. Those are the only two things I think that could give me a little bit of pause in terms of let's hold off on going down to Mardi Gras or going down to Bourbon Street and getting down on the get down about the Saints winning the Super Bowl because we, we've seen this before 
in terms of the New Orleans Saints. I, I don't know if you could say that this version, version of the, that's what she said, version of the New Orleans Saints, I don't know if this is the best one out of a, I guess you could say a three or four year span where the Saints have been one of the elite teams in the NFL. They've been the best team in the NFC when you're speaking about combined records for the last three seasons. They've combined 37 and 11 over the 2017, 18, and 19 season. But the last three postseasons have been, I guess you could say, bitterly disappointing, befuddling, frustrating, all of those type of things in 2017. If you remember, and say fans, I'm sorry, I just have to, you know, I just got to put this on the record in terms of, you know, just so y'all can like, you know, be mature about how your response is going to be with the Saints doing well in the regular season. Because the same deal happened in 2017. They were great and this, that, and the other. Then they lost to the Minnesota Vikings 29-24 when Case Keenum. I'm sorry, Saints, man. Just It was three years ago. Get over it. Case Keenum threw a 61-yard touchdown completion to Stephon Diggs on the last play of the game for the Vikings win. That was the game where the young cornerback, not only did he read the play wrong, then he tackled the guy who could have made the play for the Saints, and Diggs went into the end zone right side, threw his helmet off, and they went wild, they went wild, they went wild over in Minnesota. So that was 2017. 2018, I'm sorry, man. All right, I'll, I'll make this quick. I'll make this very fast. They lost in overtime to the Los Angeles Rams. That was the infamous no-call on a pass interference, illegal helmet-to-helmet hit by Rams cornerback Nikel Roby Coleman. That started off the whole, we got to, you know, see what we can do about challenging pass interference calls and everything. That prevented the Saints from potentially going to go-ahead touchdown and running out the clock. So, yeah, bad luck. That's bullshit. That sucks. Bad refereeing. The fourth, the Rams forced overtime with time remaining in the fourth quarter. And then, what, Zerline, Greg Zerline kicked like a 50-something yard field goal to... I've send the Rams to the Super Bowl. All right, I'm almost done. I just got to, like I said, use this for content. 2019, they lost to Minnesota at home in overtime. Kyle Rudolph in overtime catch, uh, caught the um, game-winning pass. It was Kirk Cousins' first postseason victory. And that was the time where I guess you could still label Kirk Cousins this a guy who, yeah, you know, a week six in the regular season, a week seven in the regular season, a week 13 in the regular season. Yeah, Kirk Cousins is great when there's nothing on the table, when there's nothing to play for, when the stakes aren't high. But the greater the game, the greater of importance of the game, the smaller that Kirk Cousins, you know, plays. Well, that wasn't the case in that playoff game against the um, – New Orleans Saints, after another great season, another great regular season by the Saints went bye-bye. And I'll give you guys credit this. I mean, you know, you might be able to say that you're semi-sort of like the 1990 Buffalo Bills in terms of, you know, you go to four straight Super Bowls and you didn't win one? What a loser. No, no, no. You Going to four straight Super Bowls does not make you a loser. I don't give a damn who you are. I don't give a damn how many times you lose. The Vikings, who lost three Super Bowls and five tries in the 1970s, those guys were not losers. The Raiders, who spent 10 years as one of the elite teams from 1967 till they finally won a championship in 1976, Ken Stabler, the Oakland Raiders beating the Minnesota Vikings 32-14. Those guys during that time were not losers. 
So success, just because you don't have the ultimate success in winning championships, that does not make your, you a loser. That does not make your team a loser. Makes you disappointed, makes you a little bit bitter, but it does not make you a loser. Because look, the Saints are still doing their thing. And you speak about losses that the Saints have endured, had to deal with for the last three years. And you think about other teams who have just had one setback and how that has led to a domino effect to where it affects the way their franchise is now. You're taking a look. Now, look, I know these examples you're going to be saying, well, shit, man, that's the Super Bowl. We lost in the playoffs. But the type of losses that have broken other teams, have the Atlanta Falcons ever been the same since losing a 28-3 lead in the second half of the Super Bowl to the New England Patriots? Has Matt Ryan ever been the same? Dan Quinn is no longer the coach of the team. Has that? Have they ever gotten over that? I don't think so. You take a look at the, the Seattle Legion of Boom. That was supposed to be a dynasty. They've never recovered. That core group of defenders, they've mentioned it themselves. Richard Sherman, Ken Chancellor, Earl Thomas. Those guys have gone on record and said, you know what, That we've never really recovered. Or as a team, we never recovered from you know, Pete Carroll and Daryl Bevel decided they're going to throw the ball at the one-yard line, and Malcolm Butler said, oh, thank you very much, I'll take that, instead of handing it off to Marshawn Lynch. That Seattle team that was supposed to be a dynasty in the making and could have been a dynasty in the making. They had just beaten the uh, beaten the tar out of Peyton Manning and the Denver Broncos the last time they were in the Super Bowl, and then they played this wonderful game against Tom Brady and the New England Patriots the many times that this was the opportunity for a team to vanquish the Patriots dynasty, and they had the game sitting right there, and they decided to get cute instead of being smart in that situation. Yeah, that team, the way it was constituted, the foundation of that team, the stars of that team, the important players of that team that constituted the Seattle uh, defense, the Legion of Boom, the offense and such, never recovered from that. So now you're speaking about not only has the New Orleans Saints been punched in the gut once, what that play against Minnesota, Case Keenum throwing that touchdown on the last play of the game. It wasn't even a goddamn Hail Mary. It wasn't something where it was kind of like, you know, it was just a jump ball or something like that. It was just a matter of, yeah, sure, you can catch it. And as soon as you catch it, we're going to go ahead and tackle you and the game's going to be over. The way they lost was much, much more difficult to bounce back from in terms of it. They just, Minnesota just got lucky by catching their Hail Mary in the end zone. So the New Orleans, New Orleans Saints came back from that. Then, how many teams outside of New England in 2007 who lost their opportunity to go down record-wise as the greatest team of all time, and they came back and won a few more Super Bowls, but how many other teams for sure do you know that would have been able to overcome what the New Orleans Saints had to overcome after getting, I don't think the word correct word is cheated, because if you're cheating, if the umpire or the referee who didn't make that call was cheating, that means you are saying that he knew that it was pass interference. He knew that it was illegal contact, but he just chose not to throw the flag. That's cheating. What he did was criminally, ridiculously, uh, uh, I don't know what to say, incompetent in terms of not being able to see that was pass interference. But yet the way that team, the way that New Orleans team lost that game, that should have destroyed them. That should have at least knocked them down a couple of pegs. 
No one would have been, nobody would have been sitting up there talking about, man, I can't believe that the New Orleans Saints didn't get into the playoffs this uh, past season if the next season, 2019, they had finished 9-7 and seven, or some of those guys would have gone into a slump. Because to lose that way, good God almighty, where you feel that you had it taking, taken away from you, not by a player, not even by your own team calling a bad player or whatever, you feel it was stolen for that team to bounce back to show the resiliency to do what they did in 2019 to still be one of the elite teams in the NFL. It's pretty remarkable. Speaks of inner strength. Speaks of leadership. Speaks of incredible acumen. Speaks of mental toughness. That's what the New Orleans Saints have. I don't know how many more times the Saints can go ahead and do this. Maybe this is their last time. You're speaking about a 41-year-old quarterback and Drew Brees. We don't know what his plans are. And moving forward, if Brees decides after this season, win or lose, in the playoffs that he's done, he's going to move on to something else, you really don't think the Saints can still maintain that level of excellence with Taysom Hill as your quarterback. And there's no knock on Taysom Hill. Drew Brees is going to go down as one of the greatest quarterbacks who's ever played the game. And I still think at the age of 41 years old, Drew Brees, as far as quarterback with the New Orleans Saints, is a top 10 quarterback. So it's not just a matter of, you know, Sean Payton might be great. Sean Payton might be one of the better offensive minds who have been a head coach in the NFL over the past 10, 15, 20 years. But, I mean, Drew Brees, Taysom Hill, big difference. You'll still have Kamara. I'm not saying that the Saints are going to fall off the cliff. But what I'm saying is, and it depends on Drew Brees and shit, who even knows what Drew Brees from year 41 to 42, even if he does decide to come back and play again. We, we don't, there's no guarantee that the Saints can continue to keep this up. So Saints fans, you could be looking at the possibility that this is it. After this season, it's going to be, I don't think retooling is the, situ- is the, is the uh, word or the phrase that you can use because you don't need to, you know, you know be rebuild, tear down to rebuild, but your status your chances of winning the Super Bowl, I think the window, if not completely shut, is pretty much closed. If you speak about the ascension or the uh, consistency of excellence, let's say a team like the Kansas City defending champions have, or you take a look at uh, you know, maybe a team like a bounce-back team like the San Francisco 49ers. Who knows if they're going to lose their defensive coordinator? Who knows what they're going to do about the quarterback position? But, you know, if Kyle Shanahan gets to reload with another pretty good quarterback, maybe a Jameis Winston, hmm, that possibly, you know, the San Francisco 49ers could be a team that could be on the ascension. Uh, you're speaking about a team like you still going to, who's still going to have the Green Bay Packers with Brett Favre. I'm Brett Favre. Um, uh, Aaron Rodgers. So who knows? Who knows what's going to be happening, but you got to take advantage of this now if you're the New Orleans Saints. Gut punch after gut punch after kicking the nuts, you survived. But one thing you will not be able to survive is father time. One thing you will not be able to survive in terms of maintaining your excellence and maintaining your place on the percentage of you winning championships is going to go down if Drew Brees decides that this is going to be his last year. So this might be it, New Orleans. Don't get 
Case Keenum. Don't get uh, Kurt Cousins. Don't get Kyle Rudolph. Don't get bad called in the playoffs. Make it happen because this is the last chance you might be able to get to make it happen. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So glad that you could be with us. Thankful that you could be with us. Who is us? Who is us? I'm the only one sitting here, you stupid son of a bitch. Welcome back to the program. So glad that you could be with me. A lot of things to get down on discussing today. Everything in the world of sports. I'm, uh... What the hell is wrong with my cable outlet? I was watching a murder in the heartland. I I love these shows because here in this country, when you start talking about, they always have these shows about, you know, murder in places where you won't, you would never expect to find someone getting killed or raped or mangled or anything like that in these small little towns. And they always say, yeah, you know, we're not like Chicago. We're not like New York. You know, we're not like these big cities. Let me tell you something, man. In these big cities, the stupid stuff that these people do out here in the heartland, if you're speaking about Nowhereville, Kansas, and Missouri, and Montana, and Dakotas, and all this nonsense, what y'all do in terms of killing each other, it ain't even close to what y'all, what, you know, people do in them big cities. I mean, you're talking about some Florida-type stupidity-type shit where you're speaking about some of the crimes that take place. Try the Skidmore, Missouri's. Try the um, the uh, clutter residents out there in uh, all that. Where is that? In, oh, where was that place in Kansas uh, where Herb Clutter and his family was killed back in the '60s by uh, Richard Hickok and uh, Perry Smith, and uh, that weirdo uh, wrote a book about it uh, in cold blood. Oh shoot! I hear the voice. I hear the voice, and it looks like this short little guy who was gay, which is no big deal, but. Or uh, uh, Truman Capote. Yeah, Truman Capote wrote the book and, you know, he fell in love with the two guys, especially Perry Smith, who, you know, admitted killing the guy and he got hung. And when Perry Smith was hung, Truman couldn't take it because he was so in love with this mass murderer. Oh, if you only would have turned out differently. So when everybody talks about, I don't understand what's going on here in this small little town. It's a great place to raise your family and to grow your kids. And I'll never want to leave. And it's peaceful. And we can leave the keys in the car. And we don't have to worry about no one stealing them. Or we can leave the door wide open. And we don't have to worry about someone coming in and busting in the place and stealing everything. It's just a little slice of heaven. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's so friendly. And second and third generation folks live here. And we all know each other. And we all love each other. And every Everything is great. And then 10 minutes later, they're talking about this grisly murder that just happened. It's like, okay, 
And I can't believe it. That doesn't happen. I mean, I thought stuff like that happened in like New York City or somewhere down there in Birmingham, Alabama or, or Dallas, Texas. Or I didn't know. I, it couldn't be happening in this sweet little conservative type tale. So, I, you know. so the murder in the heartland. That's what I'm watching as I'm doing this podcast speaking about sports. Speaking about sports here, my name's Wendell's World of Sports I'm going to be maybe speaking about a little Alabama football next time we talk because that Alabama football team, let me tell you something. What they done did to LSU, woo-suey. Pig suey, that's Arkansas, sorry. What they did down there to LSU and that boy, Ed Orgeron was up there talking about, that Cajun boy was talking about how he's the new king of the block. Well, let me tell you something there. LSU ain't got nothing on Bama. This is Bama's day. And we're going to go ahead. Nick Saban is the greatest football coach who's ever lived. Nick Saban is the greatest human being who's ever lived because he bought us a championship. He won us a championship. He won us multiple championships. And we're going to go ahead. We're going to do everything that we can to go ahead and win that national championship. And vote for Donald Trump. Woo! Okay. <laughs> Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host. It's late at night, y'all. I'm sorry. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Um, getting back to the NFL. Rankings. We've got New Orleans, Green Bay, the Rams, the Giants, Seattle, Tampa, Minnesota. You know, when I take a look at this group, we all know how good New Orleans is. We all know how good Green Bay is. We all know how good the Rams are. We all, you know, I talked about Seattle. I got to give Tampa Bay had a week off, so I'll give a week off from speaking about Tom Brady and. And them boys, Kurt Cousins in Minnesota. I don't know, man. If I'm thinking about one team that's not going to be in the playoffs when everything is all said and done, if between these teams, one of these teams in the NFC has to fall out, I think it's going to be Minnesota. But I'm thinking to myself, well, who else is going to take their place? It's not going to be Dallas. It ain't going to be Washington. It's not going to be San Francisco. I don't know who's going to be. Maybe it's by default that the Minnesota Vikings are going to be the last team in the playoffs. But the most surprising team of the group that I just mentioned of teams, New Orleans, Green Bay, Rams, Giants, Seattle, Tampa, Minnesota. The most surprising is the New York Giants, man. <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, yeah, the NFC is a joke and all the, the NFC East is a joke and blah, blah, blah. But still, if you would have asked me four weeks ago, the one in seven New York Giants were going to be in first place, I might say, yeah, they might be in first place because everybody else is going to lose and all the Giants need to do is win a couple of games. So yeah, I can see a giant team that's three and eight somehow, somewhere, or four and four and eight or something like that. I can see them tied for first place, but do I take them seriously? No. Do I take the Giants now at five and seven seriously? They won four consecutive games. Game ahead of Washington. They own the uh, tiebreaker, as I mentioned before. No matter what happens. And yeah, are they a real threat defense-wise? Who knows, man? They're a good defensive squad. Joe Judge has done a good job getting those guys. They play hard, play play together. I'm not saying that, ooh, they're winning even with Daniel Jones out of the lineup. Insignificant, inconsequential. But um, I think the fact that those guys, and and Washington too, I'll give my, my Washington Snyder skins, my Washington, we just beat the undefeated Pittsburgh Steelers skins. So I'll give them credit too, because I was speaking about, remember when I would go ahead and start doing that, hey, failing for Fields and losing for Lawrence and, uh, you know, tanking for Trevor type of stuff. And I was reading off some of the names and there were times where the New York Giants were like number three or number four, only like three or four weeks ago in terms of their ranking. 
for quarterbacks. And I was up there talking about, man, if I'm, a, I'm, I'm still, I'm still of this mindset that I would rather see the Washington football team be in a position to draft themselves a franchise quarterback rather than finish the season. I don't know, man, what seven and nine. I mean, what's the deal if we finish seven and nine and we don't make the playoffs? Is that a success? We're moving forward. We're moving forward. How much more forward can you move when you have a 38-year-old quarterback who's come off a broken leg where it was almost amputated, where his life almost ended? We're going to miss out on an opportunity. I don't know. Maybe Zach Wilson, we can draft out of BYU. Maybe Mac Jones will be the answer. Mac Jones, Mac Jones. I don't know, man. But getting back to the Giants, I mean, their turnaround from being one of the worst teams in the NFL to where they are now, I mean, the chances aren't great for them to pull off an upset, but that defense, you never know. Again, any given Sunday. But offensive-wise, you got Colt McCoy, again, who got his first win this past Sunday against Seattle. Seattle as a starting quarterback since week eight of 2014, of the 2014 season. He might have been with the Washington football team when he got that. Wayne uh, Gallman rushed for 135 yards on 16 attempts, and he was only on the field for 50% of the plays, 26 of the 56 snaps. That's all he was out there for on offense. You know, they gained another game on the Eagles. Washington right there. They beat them twice. So, look, I don't, I don't know what to make of this team. I really don't. And with the type of offenses that are coming in right now, in terms of if they're going to be moving forward, you're speaking about, you know, quarterbacks such as Aaron Rodgers and Drew Brees. And look, Jared Goff is a very good system quarterback. I think that uh, the stuff that Sean McVay runs puts really uh, plays to the strengths of Jared Goff enough to where, look, with Colt McCoy as your quarterback, even with Daniel Jones coming back as your quarterback, and I mean... I don't know. I don't even want to bring up the the argument if the Giants continue to win with Colt McCoy. Is he the better option if you're going to be planning on playing a playoff game at home against a team like Tampa Bay or a team like Seattle? Do you stick with the veteran McCoy or do you go back to the second-year guy, Daniel Jones? What are your chances of winning a playoff game against a team like a Seattle that had Russell Wilson that's won a Super Bowl, like a Tom Brady who's won six Super Bowls? You're actually going to pit him against um, against uh, Colt McCoy, but then what's your other option, Daniel Jones? That looks even more like a mismatch. So if that's the case, do you stick with McCoy? We'll see. We'll see. Maybe the offense is being set in place where, once again, ball control dominated. You don't need a Daniel Jones to go out there and be great. So the experience of Colt McCoy playing that game manager type role, which he's played basically his entire career, maybe that's more suited for the New York Giants moving forward towards this year. Almost sort of kind of like a Nick Foles coming in for Carson Wentz when he got injured. Yeah, Carson Wentz at that time might have been the better quarterback, but somehow, someway, when Nick Foles came in, the Eagles even took it up another notch. The fit, the personality, I don't know what it was. But I'm guessing, because I've been watching the entire winning streak that um, that the Giants have been on, that maybe in a situation like that, the players feel more comfortable or feel more confident at this time in Colt McCoy doing what he can do to win games than right now a 
player who's still green behind the ears in terms of his experience at the starting quarterback in the NFL, such as Daniel Jones. So we'll see. We'll see moving forward. <sighs> the NFC least. Look, I'm, all right. The, the, the Giants, four-game winning streak. Devils in the details. Look at the four games that they won. Look at the four teams that they won. I think the combined records are like 9-24-1. <laughs> they played the, the except for the, the uh, Seattle, the, for the uh, Seahawks, they played Washington, Philadelphia, and Cincinnati. And they played Cincinnati without Joe Burrow. So, okay, we're, we're, so we're not going down murderer's row here in terms of, ooh, look what the Giants are doing. But still, I mean, hey, you know, they're still doing well. They are still doing well. And give it up for uh, Joe, Joe Judge, Brian Flores, Mike Tomlin, Sean McDermott of Buffalo, Kevin Stefanski of Cleveland, Matt LaFleur, what that man is doing in Green Bay has to be applauded and has to be spoken about when we're trying to figure out who should win the coach of the year. But I'm telling you, the way the Giants are playing right now, especially, again, the way they were, where they were four weeks ago, um, who they have playing at the skill possessions, Positions. I'm not saying that Joe Judge deserves the award over a Tomlin who's right now has the Steelers at, what, 11 and 1. You got to maybe throw Andy Reid in there of Kansas City. Flores, what he's doing down in Miami. McDermott, what he had the Bills are right now. Uh, Kevin Stef- uh, Stefanski, I think it's between, as of right now, as of this week, it's got to be between McDermott, Stefanski, and Flores in terms of the coach of the year. But in, in LaFleur. And, but I think Joe Judge definitely uh, deserves some love and consideration and some admiration and, you know, deserving spotlight put on him for the job that he's doing. So, I mean, old school offense, old school offensive football when it comes to the Giants. Don't turn the ball over, run the football, be physical, let your defense put you in advantageous positions to score field goals to win uh, football games, to make it ugly, make it low scoring. Sort of like what the Minnesota Vikings did under Bud Grant when they were going to the Super Bowl and doing all those things. You know, Fred Cox kicking field goals, the purple people eaters controlling the defense, uh, Fran Tarkenton being the man. But before that, hey, you know what? Go ahead and uh, ball control and win that way. So you're speaking about the Giants. They've run for more than 100 yards in seven consecutive games. That's the longest they've done since 2010 where they went, where they uh, did it nine times. The current four-game winning streak, they've averaged 162 yards rushing as a team. They ran for 190 yards against Seattle, and the defense has allowed fewer than 21 points for the uh, fourth and second game. That's their longest streak in that department since 2011. So, yeah. <laughs> I just... Way to go. Way to go for the New York Giants. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Again, God damn it! I'm looking, taking a look at this stuff. The Minnesota Vikings. Viking fans, are you happy? You can't be happy. You could be happy on one thing like, yeah, we're in the playoffs, or we got into the playoffs with the loss that the Cardinals had against the um, Los Angeles Rams. But, jeez, you had to, not only did you have to beat Jacksonville in overtime to do it, you had to have Jacksonville say, hey, wait a minute. We're the Jacksonville Jaguars. What are we doing playing so well and winning this game before you guys even got the opportunity to come back? So, 
Dan Bailey missed a 51-yard field goal attempt with 13 seconds left in regulation. But again, luckily he got the opportunity in overtime. For 23 yards, kicked it through. Phew, exhale. Vikings win. Dalvin Cook, 32 times, carrying the football, 120 yards. Also caught six passes for 59 yards. There's the key right there, man. I mean, you know, Kirk Cousins is getting paid the big money and all this kind of stuff. But as far as your success in Minnesota, especially with the defense, who I don't think is playing as well as it should be. I mean, thank goodness for Anthony Barr at the linebacker position. But, you know, the front four is not like it was a couple of years ago, along with the secondary. Mike Zimmer, the defensive coordinator, formerly the defensive coordinator with the Cincinnati Bengals, he was supposed to be the guy that was supposed to shore that up. That hasn't happened. You have a you have a rookie wide receiver who should be in the running for offensive rookie of the year and Justin Jefferson. He led the team with nine catches for 121 yards and a touchdown on sun, Sunday against the Jaguars. But I mean, are we gonna go ahead and put our faith in the Kirk Cousins, Kirk Cousins, Kirk Cousins, Kirk Cousins? He couldn't get it done in Washington in terms of a big game and Look what he did against New Orleans. Yeah, that's cool. That's great. But look what he did the week after that against San Francisco. You're paying this man a lot of money to be a guy to only have to win the game when you really need to. Dalvin Cook is going to be the most important part of that offense, not Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins is getting paid like someone, especially with that contract extension. He's getting paid like he should be the guy that can be able to put a team, the offense on his back. You got Adam Thielen. Again, uh, Justin Jefferson has filled in well for Stephon Diggs, who was traded in the offseason. You got Dalvin Cook. Instead of being a guy who is the leader of the pack in Kirk Cousins, he's just a guy, another guy who fits in. He's getting paid like a superstar. He's not getting paid like to, to fit in. You want to have someone who just wants to fit in, go get yourself Alex Smith at a cheap rate or get go get yourself a much cheaper quarterback. So, and as I mentioned before, the, the Vikings defense is not good enough to uh, have Kirk Cousins just be part of the group. So, I mean, last, last season in San Francisco, Jimmy Garoppolo with the defense that uh, San Francisco was putting down in the running game. Yeah, Gar- Garoppolo could, be, could just be part of the group. Kirk Cousins doesn't have that luxury. So we'll see moving forward. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with with us. So after all of this, look, the Vikings have won five of their last six games. They beat the Packers on the road. Here's the the maddening thing. They beat the Packers on the road. Oh, yeah, man, they're legit. But they also lost at home to Dallas. Oh, yeah, they suck. And they barely beat Jacksonville. Oh, yeah, they're frauds. Which one are we going to see here? Which one are we talking about? Now, next Sunday, or this upcoming Sunday, they play at Tampa Bay. All right. Now, now let's go ahead and start talking about what type of team do we got? Because after that, they go ahead and round out with Chicago at New Orleans and then at the Lions. Who knows if the Saints go ahead and clinch the playoffs, home uh, home field uh, home field going through in the playoffs, who knows what their lineup is going to look like, especially when it comes to Drew Brees at the quarterback for that week uh, 15 or 16 matchup with the Vikings. But Tampa Bay at Tampa Bay is going to be the game, I think, that's really going to define whether I think that the, uh, I, I think, who cares what I think, but the week six, the, that 
upcoming week against Tampa Bay, that's going to tell a lot to see if Minnesota, in terms of uh, being a true playoff team, are real or not. Because who's going to take their place? Arizona is fading. San Francisco is now 5-7. and seven. The Bears are a clown show. The Washington football team don't have the records. The Philadelphia Eagles are a train wreck. And the Dallas Cowboys does not even talk about them. I just did that so I can get some extra clicks on my podcast. So there's really not anybody that I'm taking a look at from this group that is going to take their place. Did you see this bullshit with the Chicago Bears real quick before I get out of here? Matt Nagy, I mean, we're, we're speaking about a fireable offense. A minute 46 left in the game, you're going to have Mitchell Trubisky on third down throw a pass. So what happens? I mean, you know, the worst, other than an interception, the second worst thing or tie for first would have been, of course, him fumbling, which he did. Detroit got the ball. They went down and scored. I mean, nonsense like that. We're going to land based Defensive coordinator Greg Williamson, rightfully so, with one of the dumbest play calls in NFL history. But, you know, Matt Nagy should be sending Greg Williams flowers, roses, candies, and say, hey, he's not what you think. I'm uh, happily married with kids. Because that saved, that should have saved, at least outside of the Chicago, Illinois area, that saved Matt Nagy from getting roasted for the decision that he made in terms of having Mitchell Trubisky, of all people, get back and try to throw a football. Oh, I can see if the Chicago Bears going into this game were 3-8 and eight or 2-9, and nine, and it's like, who gives a fuck? I can understand that, but the Bears somewhat still sort of kind of were in the picture of being in the playoffs, and they're still reminiscing about the fact that they went 5-1 to start the season, start the season, and they're trying to lose a... They're trying to end a losing streak. And you've got the Detroit Lions, a team that is on its first week with an interim coach at home. And this is something, this is a game where you almost have to win. And you're right there, and you blow a, what, a 10-point lead in less than, less than a couple of minutes? And you put the Lions in the... In, in the uh, space to win the game because Mitchell Trubisky, you're calling Mitchell Trubisky to throw the football with a minute and 46 left to go in the game when you're ahead on third down? Interesting. Very, very interesting. So I take a look at the NFC. I've been mainly concentrating. I don't know. The AFC just really, as of right now, outside of what the Cleveland Browns did, to the Tennessee Titans, the AFC really doesn't, you know, really doesn't get me going. You know, I don't get up and start doing the boogaloo and start boogalooing for Jesus when you start mentioning what's going down in the AFC. Now, I tell you one thing. I mean, I might do the kid and play. and might do the James Brown if you talk about what's happening in the NFC, especially if you play some get on the good foot or get off of this thing or, you know, answer in my pants and my need to dance. And you mentioned something about the New Orleans Saints. I mean, I might sometimes I dance and sometimes I clown. But you start mentioning about what's happening with Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady and what's going down with the NFC least and the Washington team beating the Philadelphia, uh, beating the Pittsburgh Steelers to knock them out of the undefeated ranks. Yeah, I got ants in my pants and I need to dance. So some big fine woman's going to give me a chance in terms of my excitement on that one, which is why I spend so much time on this podcast focusing, concentrating on the NFC. But AFC right now, love the love watching Kansas City play. <laughs> I love watching. And when you got 
what could, could potentially be a historical great quarterback in Patrick Mahomes. You're damn right I'm going to be watching as much as I can. No one's promised tomorrow. Shit, Monday, Sunday, whenever he plays might be the last day on my earth that I can be able to watch him play. So I'm gonna, if I'm going to go to heaven and be reunited with my dad and everybody else in my family, I better, I want to see Patrick Mahomes play one more time. I don't know what the reception is up in heaven. I don't know, you know, Cox Cable or whoever. I don't know what the cable outlet out there is in heaven. You know, Lord have mercy cable company for me to go ahead. I don't know if you've got the NFL red zone in heaven, so I have no idea. I don't know what the local game is in heaven in terms of what games I can watch every Sunday. So no one's promised tomorrow. So I'm going to try to watch Patrick Mahomes play every chance I get. So there you go. But the NFC, I got ants in my pants and I need to dance. The Washington football team beating the Pittsburgh Steelers. For my happiness, they're going to give me a chance. I live in emptiness without your tenderness. You just took the dream I had for us. Turn my dreams into dust. I watch a phone that never rings. I watch a door that never rings. Bring it back into my life. Turn this darkness into light. I'm all alone in this house. Turn this house to a home. I need your touch. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on, last segment of the program, before I get on out of here, feeling good, feeling fantastic, looks like I'm going to be up until about 2 o'clock this morning, not because of anything other than I'm pumped, man, I had myself a green drink, I've been uh, got my Jack LaLanne juicer over there on my countertop. I guess I've been juicing for the last, oh, I don't know, I think I, st- I started juicing for real when I got out here to, in Vegas after a couple of years, so that was around 2005, so we're speaking about 2020 to 5 to 2, so I've been about 15 years in terms of consistently juicing, done everything, juiced everything, was a smoothie guy at first, but I was like, why am I spending 4 to 5 bucks, 6, 7 bucks for a smoothie every day when I can just go ahead and get myself a Jack LaLanne juicer and juice my pears and my apples and my oranges and my pineapples and my strawberries and my mangoes and all that kind of stuff. So I did that. Then I learned that, man, you're drinking so much juice, man. But you know, that fruit juice, sugar, and even though it's natural sugar, blah, 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 blah. So I said, all right, let me go ahead and switch things up a little bit. Always incorporated mixing. I don't mix fruits and vegetables together. The only thing that I mix in terms of fruits and vegetables together with my green drinks are apples for the sweetness, lemons for the sweetness, and tomatoes, which is, you know, practically is categorized as a fruit. But for, just for taste, because you can't have spinach, kale, collards, couple of cloves of garlic, parsley, celery, and that's it. It'll destroy your stomach. Believe me, I know. So it's like you have to put some type of sweetener in there to, you know, balance out 
the the uh, taste of the of, of the greens. So you put in an apple, you put in a lemon, you put in uh, carrots, and uh, you know carrots is the vegetable. But what I'm saying is you put in something a little bit sweeter to uh, tamp it down. So for me, I don't do fruit juices anymore. I do uh, green drinks, and my green drinks are always. I got to do my broccoli superfood. I got to do my spinach superfood, and it's great for the eyes. The lutein's good for the eyes. The tomatoes, which is categorized again as a fruit, but I don't consider it a fruit. But that's also very good for your eyes. I don't have anything with arthritis, so bell peppers and green bell peppers and uh, tomatoes don't uh, disturb me in any type of way with my joints or anything like that. So. Bell peppers, tomatoes, spinach, kale, all for the eyes. Collards, very well uh, for the eyes. Vitamin A with the carrots, which is great. Dandelion greens, which is the highest content of vitamin A. Vitamin A is awesome for your eyes. And then I put in um, some carrots. And I put in the garlic, especially. Garlic is great for the immune system. Uh, so I go ahead and do that. So it knocks me out. I drink 16 ounces of green drink. I don't do it unless I'm going to have a couple of hours of me doing nothing. Because as soon as I drink it, it knocks me out. I mean, it knocks me the fuck out. And I'm down anywhere from about, I don't know, anywhere from about 20 minutes to an hour and a half. It all depends on what time of the day I'm drinking it and what my day was all about. How tired I am when I drink it and everything. But... It doesn't give me any energy. It doesn't give me a bowl of energy when I drink it or anything like that. No, it does not do that at all. It knocks me out. But when I'm done, as far as my nap is concerned, and everybody should nap at least 5, 10, 20, half an hour a day. You know, it's just good for your system to do that. So, especially people my age and my generation. But when I'm done with my nap, and I uh, have my nature calls because, you know, you drink the carrots and you drink the apples and everything they get the bowels moving so once nature calls and you release and you uh get refreshed from that you feel awesome so the immediacy of me drinking green juice the benefits of my quote-unquote energy does not happen the minute i drink it but when i'm done with my nap about 20 minutes later man i'm bouncing off the walls with energy so uh yeah i that's the reason why i'm you know feeling so good with this podcast because I'm just feeling great. I feel great. I'm glad that I put a lot of good stuff in my body and uh, a lot of really good stuff in my body. That's what she said. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right, let's get back to what we were speaking about, what I wanted to talk about now, the NFL news. The New York Jets on Monday fired defensive coordinator Greg Williams. No. One day after the worst call, I guess you could say one of the worst calls. I don't know if you could say it's the worst call, but it's one of the worst calls in modern football day football history. <laughs> Williams was universally criticized for calling a risky, risky, huh? Cover zero blitz while protecting, protecting a four-point lead against the Las Vegas Raiders. The results was Henry Ruggs saying, oh, thank you, Ruggs saying, saying thank you very much. A 46-yard touchdown pass with five seconds left to go in the game that gave the... Raiders a 31-28 win and dropped the hapless Jets to 0-12. So according to Next Gen Stats, the Jets are the only team to send A-plus pass rushers on a play in the last 30 seconds of a game this season. 
Um, and everybody's saying, hey, that's what Greg Williamson does. That's what Greg Williamson does. And a couple of plays before, Nelson Aguilar had run a seam straight down the middle, and he was wide open, and Derek Carr just missed it. So in one instance, Greg Williams is like, well, you know, how do I want to die? Do I want to go out my way or their way? Because it looks to me like the Raiders are going to have a pretty good chance either way of getting a decent shot in the end zone for a touchdown. Hey, I'm not going to be DeAndre Hopkins in terms of – them catching a Hail Mary. All of those things, in theory, I sort of kind of get, but goddamn, man, cover zero, and you have a a rookie quarterback guarding the guy who ran a 4-2-40 in the draft? What? I'm not a defensive coordinator. I've never coordinated the defense for an NFL level. I hadn't done it as long as Greg Williams, and they don't have a Super Bowl ring of me being a defensive coordinator. So, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to play defensive coordinator here, but even someone as lame as me in terms of the amount of ignorance I have in coordinating an NFL defense will kind of know that maybe that's not the best of ideas. And Adam Gates, I don't know if it's out of I don't give a fuckness or I'm scared of him or I'm clueless or I had no idea. I don't know what the excuse was for. I don't know if the Jets had a timeout or not for that call for him to be like, holy shit, time, 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 time. Call timeout. What the fuck are you doing, Greg, calling that bullshit? I don't know exactly what the communication was. The relationship between Gaze and Williamson is not great to begin with. So I don't know all of the minutia that went on for him to make that call and for that play to actually go down. And, and look, the Raiders giving credit for picking up the blitz. Carr had a pretty nice pocket to uh, make that throw. It was a double move. So the offensive line for the Raiders did well. If you want to criticize the Jets for not getting to the quarterback, putting some pressure on the quarterback. I don't know. There's a lot of things that go into a blown play like that. The Jets have to stink out loud. The Raiders have to execute, get a little bit lucky. Everything has to fall into place. But when everything is all said and done, everybody who knows football, and you know everybody who was coaching football at that highest, highest level was up there talking about Rick Williamson is an idiot. So, all right. All right, I got to go with them. So, the next question would be, are the Jets tanking to go 0-16? Like, for... for some reason, Greg Williams was sitting there going, man, we're going to win this fucking game. Adam Gates is going to get a win. Fuck that bullshit. Cover zero. That, that was Booger McFarlane on Monday night was talking about, like, yeah, the distrust and the dysfunction and Greg Williams is that type of guy to go ahead and do something like that. And I, I, you know, I mean, if you were going to tank a game, you had to wait until there was five seconds left to go before you got to do that. If you were going to tank, why didn't you just have the Raiders score of uh, the, the the possession before, uh, what you had to wait till the, you had to cut it down that close. I mean, that's that's some pretty good shit right there. I mean, do the players know that you're taking to call a play like that? Because you know, if they do get to the quarterback, then that pass doesn't happen. So you are taking a risk if you're taking that this play might actually work. So I, I don't. The, the thought of the Jets tanking, I think, is the biggest. The Jets aren't tanking. I know the fans were elated when that play happened. But no, I don't think the players and the coaches are sitting around here going, oh shit, you know what? If we go, uh, we win this game, we might not get the opportunity to draft Trevor Lawrence. So yeah, let's go ahead and let's botch this play and let's hope when Greg calls in this play that we can go ahead and fuck it up so the wide receiver can be wide open and catch the touchdown pass with five seconds left to go so we can remain uh, uh, on the on the path to be 0-16. I don't think any player in NFL history in NFL history is trying to go 0-16. 
I really don't. I know one damn thing. I know Sam Darnold sure ain't trying to go no damn 0-16 unless he really wants to get the hell out of uh, New York City or the uh, New York Jets organization. So, not nonsense. The players, the coaches, they don't give a shit about what happens to the organization next season. Those guys aren't going to be with the organization for next season. So, why do they give a damn? Why are they going to throw them a solid and say, yeah, let's go ahead and tank this game so... My employer, who's going to fire me 15 seconds after the final game is over, they can be in position to go ahead and draft themselves a franchise quarterback that can turn them around and lead them to the glory land. You know, let's go ahead and do that. No, those guys are still playing for jobs. You start getting that reputation? Do you think you're ever going to get a, an opportunity to play in the NFL again? Of course not. So for that to go ahead, and even that could be a discussion, is is, is nonsensical. It's, it's right around the same level of stupidity as... Could the um, could the New York Jets lose to uh, the lose to Alabama? You know that type of stupidity. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Look, under Williams, the defense wasn't that good to begin with. The team was giving up almost 400 yards a game, which was ranked last in the NFL. They were giving up almost 30 points a game. That's ranked 30th. They just weren't good. Bad mix of defensive coordinator. And players. And really, for New York Jets fans and everybody talking about Greg Boy, you know what? If I'm the New York Jets fan, if I'm Curdy B, if I'm Chris Chapman or any of my other friends who are New York Jets fans, man, I'm telling you one thing. I am saying thank you, Jesus, to Greg Williams. I'm not talking, I'm not scorning this guy. I'm not, uh, you know, pissing on this guy. I'm not berating this guy. I'm not talking negative about this guy. I'm saying thank you, Greg Williams. You have fucking saved us. What, you think the New York Jets, Jets fans are happy about, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, Justin Fields might be a nice consolation, but he sure damn ain't Trevor Lawrence. Well, this is all based on the assumption that Trevor Lawrence is even going to uh, leave Clemson. He could be taking a look at this situation and be like, nah, man, I'm good. Um, I'm good. You know, I'm going to be sticking to college for another year. So there's really no, that means Trevor Lawrence isn't a senior. And who knows, he might be able to do a Eli Manning, Power play. He might be able to do a John Elway power play. Now, Trevor Lawrence ain't playing baseball, but he could do an Eli Manning and be like, under no circumstances whatsoever, I'm going to uh, go to your squad if you draft me. Of course, if I'm the Jets, I'm saying, oh, yeah, well, we're going to draft you. Now what do you do? I'm calling your bluff. But still, there's no uh, there's no already pre-arranged, prearranged marriage between the Jets if they go 0-16 and Trevor Lawrence coming out early to the draft and being selected by the uh, by the New York Jets. But if that happens, that play, you're speaking about the the miracle at MetLife, that's what they're calling it, right? That play could have had the could have the biggest impact on the history of the New York Jets organization since they drafted Joe fucking Willie Namath back in the mid 60s. Really, if you think about it, if Trevor Lawrence becomes out and becomes a Jet and lives up to the expectations, wins Super Bowls and all this kind of nonsense, brings the Jets back. Oh my goodness, wonderful. Greg Williams should have a section of the stadium named after him. They should have a statue right next. If they're ever going to put a statue of Joe Namath right next to it, it should be Greg Williams if Trevor Lawrence lives up to all expectations. If he reaches the expectations of the biggest dreamers that are New York Jets, if that happens, they should rename the practice field after Greg Williams, if the uh, New York Jets have the opportunity to draft Trevor Lawrence, he turns out to be 
uh, spectacular. He turned up to live, if he turned out to live up to expectations. And there's also news. Did you hear this? I read this in the Post, New York Post, that Bill Cowher could become the next head coach of the Jets. Bill Cowher? You mean the guy who coached it? Yeah, Bill Cowher, the guy who used to coach the Steelers. Coached into a Super Bowl, all that stuff. During his Monday morning show on WFAN in New York City, Boomer Esiason, who works with Cowher on CBS, the, Today, the NFL Today show, which I've never watched, he made it sound like Cowher might have just a little bit of interest. Like the story is about, he was discussing him and his co-host, Greg uh, Giancani, he was discussing the disaster that the Jets are, and he was speaking about, you know, Gene Connolly was talking about, you know, Cower would be the perfect fit of the coach, but, you know, I mean, this is Jets, and why would Bill Cower take that job? It's never going to happen. And Boomer's like, what are you talking about? Well, all I know is that, you know, yesterday he was up there and showing me and Nate Burleson film of him coaching on the sidelines and where we, where he was mic'd up and... Boomer Esiason was talking about him and Nate looked at each other like, wow, what is, what is this guy doing? What does this mean? Is he sending some type of message? I mean, I've worked with the man for 14 years. I've never seen anything like that. Now, this could all be semantics. This could all be, you know, Billy Bill got, got a little bit of uh, of the poo tang uh, the night before and he's feeling good or I don't know. I mean, it could be a lot of everything. Too much caffeine in his drink. I don't know. Maybe he drank a green drink before he got there. I don't know what the situation is for him to be so giddy and to be so up and to be so motivated and to be so enthused about him being mic'd up. Or maybe he was just in the mood. You know, when you hit 63, those things happen, I heard. But um, you know, the Vi- Viagra kicked in a little bit late. Just kidding, coach. But, you know, I, I don't think that's a tall tale sign that he's ready to get back into coaching. But... Cowher, who's going into the Hall of Fame this year along with Jimmy Johnson. I mean, he never said that I'm officially retired. He hasn't Tony Dungy'd himself in terms of, you know, I'm 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 moving on. I've got some other things to do, this, that, and the other. They say that his wife is a New York Jets fan. You know, I think all of his children are out of the house, so he doesn't have to worry about that anymore. So, I mean, we've seen Joe Gibbs come back from a long sabbatical to become the coach of Washington. We've seen Dick Vermeil come back after a long sabbatical. Um, from the Philadelphia Eagles to coach the um, St. Louis Rams. So it's happened before. I mean, even back in the day, Bud Wilkerson went decades of coaching, uh, between coaching University of Oklahoma and then becoming the coach of the St. Louis Cardinals. So, I mean, after 14 years, I don't know how Cow- how long Cowher has been out of the business, but, you know, after over a decade out of the uh, out of the coaching profession, it wouldn't be incredible it wouldn't be uh you know all inspiring or presidential setting for him to go ahead and do that and you take a look at the jets the opportunity for a coach to uh coach a talent like trevor lawrence if that available that uh, becomes available and you're speaking about new york city with the jets and everything could be i i don't know bill cower i haven't spoke to bill cower i don't know what Bill Cowher is thinking, so I don't know. I don't know. We'll we'll see what happens. That would that would be a splash though for the uh, Jets in the offseason if they could go from adding Gaze to what people think is is the coach of Bill Cowher. So it'll be interesting. Drama. Stay tuned. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us and <laughs> the Philadelphia Eagles. Let's move on down to the city of brotherly love. What should the Philadelphia Eagles do? Moving forward with Carson Wentz. You got any answers for this? You, 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 you. Jalen Hurts is going to be starting against the Saints. What do you do with Wentz? 
<laughs> I mean, if I'm the uh, if I'm Doug Peterson, is my job in jeopardy enough to where I have to go this route? But then again, you could say it the other way. It's like, look, Jalen Hurts is he going to give you a better opportunity to win other than Carson Wentz? Now maybe this football player we know this Carson Wentz for 2020. Yeah, I'm quite sure Jalen Hurts mentally he's not a he's not as banged up or beaten up. I mean, Carson Wentz just seems like he doesn't know what the hell he's doing out there. Carson Wentz just seems... I'm, I'm not, I don't want to say that he's become the football version of Steve Sachs or someone who's got the yips like uh, uh, Jose Altuve was with the um, Houston Astros in the uh, playoffs this season. But it just seems like Carson Wentz... I don't know, man. I don't know if he's thinking. I don't know if he has no confidence. I don't know if it's just a combination of things that are all negative. But he's been awful. He's been terrible. And look, he's not the only one. The wide receivers can't get open. They have no running back what to speak of. The offensive line is a joke. Doug Peterson isn't helping him any. So this is just not a Carson Wentz problem, I don't think. He's the main part of the problem because he's the quarterback. He's the one that has the ball in his hands the most. But he's, he's just been bad. So after the Eagles fell behind 23-3 against the Packers and another episode of good, goodness gracious, this team stinks. And Wentz was 6 for 15 for 79 yards. They just said enough, 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 enough. Carson just, hey man, just have a seat. In fact, Carson and Wentz after the game were talking about, yeah, no one ever, no one really didn't even tell me. I mean, you know, you didn't even have Peterson come up to him and be like, hey, look, you know, we're going in another direction. We're just, just that and the other. We're just like, yeah, there's the, there's the bench and there's the dunce cap. Sit down and put on, put it on. So Jalen Hurts came in, got the Eagles their first touchdown of the day. A few plays later on a 32-yard pass to uh, Greg Ward. Hurts had a had 104 net yards on 15 dropbacks. Wentz had 57 net yards on 19 dropbacks. Hurts ran for 29 yards, making him Philadelphia's leading rusher on the day. Wow. Wow. Um... I, I don't I don't I don't know where to go. But Carson Wentz looks like a complete shell of himself. I don't know. I don't know what it is. And I don't know if Carson Wentz can get it back. Going into the season, we were I was speaking about, you know, Carson Wentz or Dak Prescott, and I was even in my other podcast last season with the NFL, the discussion. Dak Prescott or Carson Wentz and Carson Wentz is making this much money, then Dak is going to ask for that much. And I was like, no, I don't think Dak should be making more than Carson Wentz because I think Carson Wentz is a better quarterback than Dak Prescott. If you take a look at all the weapons that Dak Prescott has on offense compared to uh, what Carson Wentz is playing with, and if you take a look at the responsibilities that Carson Wentz has with the Philadelphia Eagles for them to be successful on offense compared to what Dak Prescott, his responsibility in terms of what he needs to do for his team to be successful. I was speaking about this on my podcast in 2019. I was, I said, no, I think that moving forward that Carson Wentz is going to be one of those guys in terms of when we're speaking about the 2024, 23, 2025 season, that Carson Wentz is going to be one of those quarterbacks who are going to be known or are going to be one of the elite quarterbacks in the NFL. How different a season mix. Carson Wentz, there was no sign of this. It wasn't like, well, you know, last year he was feeding. I mean, you know, no, it wasn't anything like that. Carson Wentz 
The talent was similar, but Carson Wentz took a team that was lacking a number one wide receiver. The, the, wide, the, the tight end, still good, still his main option, Zach Ertz. But, you know, this guy, George Kittle, you know, this guy is one of the elite uh, wide, uh, tight ends in the game. He didn't have a Nick Chubb behind him. He didn't have a Derrick Henry behind him where he could do play action passes like Ryan Tannehill. He didn't have offensive weapons like Patrick Mahomes had. He didn't have a DeAndre Hopkins like uh, Deshaun Watson had last season. And he still led that team to the playoffs or put them in the position uh, for the playoffs last season. Yeah, the defense was a lot better, but yet still, as far as offense is concerned, there was really nobody else from the skill position uh, that was really um, comparable to other teams that made the playoffs or for other franchise quarterbacks. So it was almost like, man, you get this guy. I mean, you did you know, Philadelphia. Philadelphia did for Carson Wentz what the Buffalo Bills did for uh, Josh Allen by going out and getting him Stephon Diggs, trading for Stephon Diggs from Minnesota. If the Philadelphia Eagles did for Carson Wentz what the Arizona Cardinals did for Kyler Murray when they went out and traded for DeAndre Hopkins. Look, I know the offensive line is still putrid, so it would, maybe it wouldn't have made a difference or made make a difference enough to where this type of play would have been inevitable, but he's been terrible. He's beyond repair again for this season. 15 interceptions, first in the league. Sacks taken, 50th, first in the league. 30th in completion percentage, 29th in yards per attempt. And this is all with quarterbacks with at least 200 pass attempts. So if you take a look at interceptions, he's the worst. Sacks, sacks taken, he's the worst. Completion percentage, he's near the worst. Uh, yards per attempt, he's near the worst. So you could say statistically, he's the worst quarterback in the NFL. He's the worst starting quarterback in the NFL. I don't give a damn how much you thought Carson Wentz was overrated when he signed that big contract. I don't care all the haters out there for Carson Wentz. You could have never, ever, ever, never, guess that Carson Wentz would be this bad to the point where Jalen Hurts is going to be the guy that's going to be replacing him. Now, the argument could be, well, if this guy was so fine and dandy Wendell, like you said he was, what the hell are the Philadelphia Eagles doing with their second round pick drafting someone like a Jalen Hurts? I have no idea because I think there's limitations in my little knowledge of starting quarterbacks in the NFL. I'm not a quarterback guru. I'm not a quarterback coach, and I'm not a quarterback scout. I only play one on my podcast. But Jalen Hurts, I think, has some limitations that can make him a franchise quarterback. Height, he's not Russell Wilson. He's not Kyler Murray to offset some of the limitations that he has. I mean, Kyler Murray might be small, but he has a strong arm. He can make all the throws. He's very elusive. He plays in the system, which is great for him. Russell Wilson, again, he's great with the deep ball. He's extremely cerebral. He's he's crafty. He does these other things. So I think those are the things, I don't know, maybe Philadelphia saw in time that possibly two or three years down the road, they might be able to um, craft Jalen Hurts. They might be able to uh, mold Jalen Hurts into a quarterback similar to um, one of the smaller quarterbacks in the league. But he doesn't have the accuracy of Drew Brees. He doesn't have the acumen as of right now of uh, some of the smaller quarterbacks to combat his height and some of his physical limitations. So I don't know. I don't know. But I I think this is just a situation where it's kind of like, look, you know, 
The more that we send Carson Wentz out there, the more that he's going to get beat up, the more that he's going to lose his confidence, the more the team's going to lose confidence in him, the more the disconnect between quarterback and team and offensive linemen and everything are going to happen. So let's just uh, pull the plug. We ain't making the playoffs. We're 3-8-1. and one. We're not making the playoffs. And even if we were in playoff contention, the way Carson Wentz is playing right now, that ain't going to happen. So... Fuck it. Let's see what we got. I mean, you know, let's see if uh, Jalen Hurts is uh, our Tom Brady to Carson Wentz's Drew Breed, uh, Drew uh, Bledsoe. I don't know. Who knows? Let's throw it up against the wall and see if it sticks. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, look, the Eagles are 3-8-1. and one. The remaining games, New Orleans and Arizona, an Arizona team that's desperately trying to get into the playoffs, at Dallas in Washington. What happens if the Eagles go 3-12 and 1? Right now they're currently in the sixth spot behind Jacksonville, the Jets, Cincinnati, Cincinnati. The, <laughs> the Bengals, the Jets, Jacksonville, the Chargers, and Dallas. What do you do with Wentz? Let's say for instance. Let's say for instance the Eagles finish third as far as the draft is concerned Trevor Lawrence is going to be drafted number one by the Jets Justin Fields number two by the uh, Jaguars you would think does Philadelphia maybe take a look I, I, I know I know they signed Wentz to a four-year 128 million dollar contract extension in 2019 that kicks in for the 2021 season I I get that I know his deal includes nearly $70 million guaranteed. I got that. According to OverTheCap.com, if you went ahead and released Wentz soon after the league year started in March, it would cost them $59.2 million in dead money and include an extra cap hit of $24.5 million. I get it. Trading him would still cost the Eagles $33.8 million in dead money and comes with a cap savings of almost $853,000 in 2021. So the trade him might not be financially you know, an advantage. But if you're in a position to, I don't know, I heard great things about Trey Lance. I haven't seen him play. He only played once this year. He seems to be like a long-term project. I don't, do you, If you're the Eagles, do you finagle? Do you move and groove? Do you think a little bit about accumulating picks, move back in the draft where you might be able to uh, get yourself a Zach Wilson? Get yourself a Mac Jones. I don't know. Hey, look, this kid from Oregon, Perry Swool, I guess he's an offensive tackle or something like that. He's supposed to be like super unbelievable, fantastic, and the Eagles need some offensive linemen desperately. So maybe it's a situation where they're just going to roll with Wentz. No, we're not looking for another quarterback. We got our quarterbacks fine and dandy right here with Wentz, with uh, Jalen Hurts. So, you know, we're not going to take a flyer on someone like uh, Trey Lance, who many people say outside of Trevor Lawrence had the higher, had the highest ceiling of all the quarterbacks who are going to be available. Someone like a uh, Zach Wilson, who has a lot of Johnny Manziel without the off-the-field immaturity and nonsense stuck to him. Uh, Matt Jones, who has rose, risen and, you know, being compared to Joe Burrow in terms of what he's done from one year to the next and being a viable option for the NFL. How many people are going to say, you know, take a look at Justin Herbert and see what he's doing with the Los Angeles Chargers 
and say, man, we never saw any of that shit in Oregon, but yet we he had the height, he had the intangibles, he has this, he has that. He goes to another system, he gets under our tutelage and take a look at what Justin Herbert is doing right now. Does the success of Herbert all of a sudden open up a situation where you have general managers and you have coaches and you have owners say, you know what, if this guy has these tools and these physical tools and this talent and that talent and these talents to be a great quarterback, and you're supposed to be a quarterback guy, Doug Peterson, we're going to draft him, put him in your hands, and you be the one to turn this quarterback into the next Justin Herbert, to turn him into the next Russell Wilson, to turn him into the next, dare we say, Patrick Mahomes light. You go ahead and do that. Do the Eagles go with that thinking? I don't know. I don't know. Because again, you have that albatross, which is Carson Wentz and his contract. And there's really, there's nothing you can do about it for the next couple of years. So regardless if the Eagles lose the rest of their games and finish 3-12-1, and and I don't know. I don't know. Fields ain't going to be there. Lawrence isn't going to be there. So after that, is it really even smart business to go ahead and draft yourself a quarterback like the Packers did with Jordan Love for a couple of years down the road when they can finally get rid of Carson Wentz and not take too much of a financial hit that they'll have a quarterback ready again, especially when they drafted Jalen Hurts in the second round? I don't know. I don't know. Possible teams mention Indianapolis and Denver in terms of they really wanted to trade Wentz. Indy has a lot of cap space. I think there's $68 million in cap space to where they can absorb Wentz's contract, and Carson could be reunited with Frank Wright, who was the offensive coordinator when he was with the uh, Philadelphia Eagles, and Wentz in 2017 had that NFL MVP-type season before he got injured. There's a situation where maybe Denver, John Elway, once again, who's tried everything in terms of trying to find a quarterback, maybe he takes a flyer on Carson Wentz. They have about $25 million available under the cap, and if you go ahead and make some... um, uh, contract uh, you cut the players you'll even have a little bit more money to go ahead to absorb that contract do the Broncos get desperate enough to say goodbye to Drew Locke and replace him with Carson Wentz I don't know man I don't know but it'll be interesting moving forward all right man that's it I am done (sighs) (sighs) I want to thank you very much for listening I want to thank you very much for spending the time with me to do what I absolutely love to do I'm going to play some music to end off this bad boy, as I always do. And I'm going to talk about the boss. I'm going to be talking about the diva. I'm going to be talking about Miss Diana Ross. When she wasn't with the Supremes, with the incredibly sexy Flo Ballard. Flo Ballard, may she rest in peace. And the incredibly gorgeous and pretty uh, Mary Wilson. Still at her mature age, looking fine for her age. Uh, But Diana Ross, you know, beautiful song. Reach out and touch somebody's hand. Make this world a better place if you can. That's what I'm reaching for, man. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm preaching. That's what I'm trying to contribute when we're speaking about trying to move this society forward. I ain't marching. I ain't fighting. I ain't swinging. I ain't rioting. I ain't doing any of that stuff. The best thing I can do in terms of trying to help the movement, the little thing that I can do, the small piece, the thing that I can do is to go ahead and uh, do what I'm doing. Reach out, touch somebody's hand, make this world a better place if you can. Lovely song, beautiful song by a female, a legend with an incredible voice. The boss, Miss Ross. So until next time, stay the way you are, 
keep moving forward, be confident, be kind, be wonderful, be sweet to the ones that you love because there's some out there who don't have that opportunity. Be good to your children, teach them right from wrong, be good human beings. I appreciate it. Ms. Ross, if you would, please. Reach out and touch somebody's hand Make this world a better place If you can